Hello everyone and welcome to the Rewatchman where we don't review movies, we re-review them. I am TC DeWitt and with me as always, Bento. Bananas! <laughs> Today we will be looking back at 1998's Pleasantville, written and directed by Gary Ross. Gary Ross, starring Tobey Maguire, Jeff Daniels, Joan Allen, Reese Witherspoon, and William H. Macy. Whoop, whoop. And a very young Paul Walker. Yes, I was very <laughs> surprised by that. I, this is the first thing I knew Paul Walker from. Not Varsity Blues, but this. <laughs> so not She's All That? Not She's All That. No, it was Pleasantville. Um, but uh, for those of you just tuning in for the first time, what we like to do here is we go back to a movie that we haven't seen in a while that we may have a strong opinion about and reevaluate. We see if a movie holds up or doesn't over the test of time. Um, some previous episodes that we've had have proven that some movies just don't hold up. But it's always nice when a movie does. Looking at you, Boondock Saints. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to number one there. Previously on The Rewatchman. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, Ben, how you doing? Well, sir. Yep. Well, sir. Yeah. Can't complain. How are you? How's everything in life? You know, we live in a very... Charged climate. Yes, I take that back. There's lots of things to complain about. (laughs) (laughs) So, but we we will get there as well. When was the last time you watched Pleasantville? I want to say the most vivid memory of this film was watching it in 10th grade. Because you know how when you have substitute teachers... They don't know what the curriculum is. They <laughs> so don't they know what you're doing. Yeah, just just put in Monsters, Inc. That's what we're watching today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure we did a uh, a um, a thing on the civil rights movement mm-hmm. in U.S. history. And my U.S. history teacher was sick out for one week. And so we just watched a bunch of movies. And Pleasantville was one of was them. Was one of them. All right, cool. And I, I could see how. You know, it served an allegory as an allegory for racism and bigotry and dis- discrimination. All Certainly. That. So, yeah, that's that's probably the last time I saw it was in 10th grade. Wow, so, so maybe like a decade 10, ago. <laughs> 10, 11 years ago. Yeah. All right. I This is one of my favorite movies. Woo! I, it's in like Strong my, words. Like my top 15, top 20. It's just it's a movie that it I saw it in 98 so when it I saw it in theaters yeah. and I saw it after, of course, but I do remember seeing it in theaters and it was a movie much like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and Truman Show in particular, yes, where the it affected me. The movie ended and I was and I was moved by it and it and it got to me and it made me think. Whereas all my friends just stood up and were ready to go get food and just like, okay, movie's over. That was cool, whatever. Um, Truman Show and Pleasantville were two movies I can distinctly remember sitting there through the credits and just letting these ideas ferment in my young mind and so that always stuck with me and uh, there was a facebook trend a couple years ago where people were like what's your favorite 10 movies just list them and i always go the extra yard i'm not just gonna list a movie i'm gonna explain why it's on the list (laughs) (laughs) and pleasantville was i think i made it like an honorable mention in my top like my top 10 and then made it an honorable mention because it's so effective of a film it's and it still is. Uh, obviously, I'm basically just coming out right out. I like this movie. <laughs> there's my review. Spoiler you can, alert. You can skip ahead an hour if you just want to hear the news. <laughs> <laughs> Too long, didn't read. <laughs> so, so, yeah, oh, <laughs> Not cool, people. Um, but, yeah, so it's it's been, I've been a few years since I've seen it. I probably watched it again 
Uh, last time I probably watched it was maybe five, six years ago. Okay. Because Candace remember, could remember seeing it with me at some point. And I remember it was on Netflix for a time, so it had to be within the last five years yeah. that I've seen this before, or seen it since. Um, but returning to it after so long... What uh, what are your initial thoughts? What are your initial uh, res- what's your initial response to going back to this movie? Absolutely. There's a there's a few things where I can nitpick, but overall, I feel as though this is the type of film where you get a different experience every time you're watching it. Because in tenth grade, my mind was blown obviously by the visuals mm-hmm. and um, just the general audacity to tackle a subject like this in a very uh, Sugary sweet package. It's it's great science fiction, man. Yeah, man. It's it's a cool alt universe type of story. And um, what I really dug about it this time around was like, well, we can dive into the themes and whatnot. But like the first thing I noticed right away was the all the religious imagery. Okay. Yeah. Oh, um, certainly. There's the temptation imagery. Yeah. The, the blatant apple. <laughs> that yeah. was just so like, oh my god, <laughs> two on the nose. <laughs> but question for you, sir. Yeah. Is Don Knotts god in this situation <laughs> no um no or is my... he the serpent <laughs> <laughs> see yes i can i i can yes i understand and see the religious imagery there but the i think the social commentary is so much stronger that the religious parallels yeah. are a, com- a more of a commentary on how religion affects society as opposed to religion as a whole. Yeah, I don't. I don't think Don Knotts is God. I don't think he's. He is some sort of paranormal being. Yeah, but there wasn't a spiritual element to him. Mm-hmm. At least in in my interpretation of his yeah. performance, it, it he it the whole thing starts with a preview for Pleasantville, mm-hmm. and it's. Eh, kind of 90s, yeah. like really 90s looking. Even the title when it came up, it was like, it opens almost exactly the same as Cable Guy. Like it, <laughs> it's not great. Not great visuals there. But then it cuts to black and says, once upon a time. Yeah. And then the movie begins. Mm. And that once upon a time is really crucial here because fairy tales are fables, are proverbs, are meant to teach a lesson, are meant to enlighten that's that's the point of bedtime stories of the once upon a time of of the once upon a time style of storytelling yeah is to be like here's a here's a cute little story that should hopefully make you think mm-hmm. once upon a time in this yeah. fantasy world so i don't see don Knotts as as god per se he's just the he's a deity of sorts i suppose yeah i'd be willing to go so far as that i'm just i'm just wondering why there was so many religious iconography present because mm-hmm. A competent filmmaker puts stuff like that there for a reason. Intentionally. Yeah. And, like, it wasn't just that. There was, like, the, uh, the I'm going to butcher his name, Macasio painting that Jeff Daniels flipped through the book. Mm-hmm. And it's the excursion of the Garden of Eden. So you, there's a blatant image of Adam and Eve that juxtaposed to uh, the previous scene in the garden, not in the garden, in, like, the, the by the lake. Lover's Lane. With, yeah. Lover's Lane mm-hmm. uh, with Tommy McGuire and Marley Shelton's character where she picks the apple and actually gives it to him. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, the burning bush. I mean, the burning tree, which or is the burning bush. Yeah, oh, very yeah. parallel to Moses and the burning bush, oh, and when boy, God yeah. speaks to him, you know. And it just makes me made me think because people were asking Toby, like, "How did you know how to put out the fire and stuff like that?" <laughs> so I'm just trying to think, was it all mean, you know? Because I know I know the the racial undertones were very um, 
apparent. That's right on the surface, yes. If anything, it's almost over <laughs> But I'm just wondering, because this time around, I'm catching all the religious religious uh, iconography and all the imagery. I'm just wondering, why is it there? The, the shape of the world, mm-hmm. particularly America, and this movie is definitely a battle of – about a capsule of Americana. Yeah. Americana is – so ingrained into Christianity that there's no way to discuss society and the sociological sociological implications of how people exist in this country mm. without focusing on religion. Now, sex is a major element throughout the course of this, as much as sex being a major a major element of Adam and Eve's ejection from Eden. Sex and the prudish nature of sex, the puritanical nature of sex, is in a in a fifties sensibility is encapsulated in those old black and white TV shows like mm-hmm. the twin bed styles of <laughs> Leave It to Beaver and um, and uh, um, like uh, th- those older Nick at Night style shows. I'm gonna I particularly Leave It to Beaver because that pops up twice on the TVs. I love Lucy. I love Lucy. Uh, the puritanical nature uh, and the prudish nature towards sex in the 50s is is represented by the old black and white TV. Yeah. They don't have toilets. They don't have a single bed. Mm-hmm. Mary, uh, uh, Mary Tyler Moore and Dick Van Dyke didn't share a bed. Oh, and, rest and in Dick peace. Van Dyke. Yeah. Yes, rest in peace. <laughs> um, no, in fact, Dick Van Dyke was there, who they wanted to play Don Knotts' character. Oh, really? Yeah, they, uh, just a little trivia there. That would be very appropriate. Love. He was going to be Rob's TV repair too. He would have, Rob Petrie was his character from Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> but religion is so important to America, mm-hmm. in good for good or bad, mm, or bad. Thanks, colonialism. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah, oh, really, you're you're really I I really honed in on this on the sociological implication the the implications of our society now. Yes. in watching the film now, there was a point. It, it pretty much the turning point of of okay now this is so accurate to what's currently happening is when Bud gives his girlfriend the umbrella yeah and Whitey shows up <laughs> <laughs> the character's name and and calls her his colored girlfriend yeah that's that's the moment right there where the movie dramatically takes a turn to mm. be poignant yeah everything from that point on is so on the nose yes it. Before that, Candace was was um, working in the other room, but she could hear the TV. There's a point where Bud tells Jeff Daniels' character, uh, "Don't think that way. No, uh, just stop. It'd probably be the best if you don't think that way. Uh, just go back to the way everything ever has been. Mm-hmm. Just stay that way." And Candace said, "Hey, do you think is Toby McGuire's character the antagonist in this? Mm-hmm. Because he's saying just stay thing, stay the way things are." Yeah. Um, no, <laughs> no, it's not. But up to that point, he was the one fighting against the the nature of the quote unquote world. Mm. After that point, it's the uh, it's that idea that is the enemy. Yeah, the idea of everything is pleasant here. Mm. Don't we want things to stay pleasant? Don't we have values yeah. that we all find pleasant? Let's just make a few rules to make sure everything stays exactly how we want it. Yeah. Once that calling her a colored girlfriend, yeah, that hit hard. Yes. It's so it's that that's the most blatant commentary right mm-hmm. there. And then from that point on, there's so much that is is just it's too timely. Yes, definitely. And and the one thing, the one part that really struck me heavily, 
And I'm not sure if this was before that moment with Whitey or afterwards, mm-hmm. but it was Big Bob's monologue at the bowling alley. Um, I I believe that's probably. I think that might be after. After. <coughs> well, I can't recall it. <laughs> but yeah, his, his patent like um, uh, speech in front of the bowling. Yes. That and, was and the all the scores on there were on track for a perfect score. By the way, yeah, it's <laughs> uh, certainly a it has to be a metaphor there, right? Absolutely, we're all on track for perfection, mm-hmm. and things are changing. It's raining out here. Yes, fear change, fear progress, fear forward thinking, forward minds, and that's what really like frightened me because it's it's way too parallel. Right, it's almost too soon for me because with all the rhetoric that's being spewed by our current president, you can see how this monologue totally reflected that in terms of just fear-mongering, not actually using facts to back up your rhetoric, but these tactics in order, these scare tactics, essentially, to get people, to get simple or weak-minded people to come to your side because they have no one else to turn to. You know what I mean, like, yeah. I, I was just waiting for Big Bob to shout, like, make Pleasantville great again <laughs> right after his monologue. Well, <laughs> it, the, the quote he says is, are we going to hold on to the values that make this place great? Yes. That's that's freaking too close. It's too, <laughs> it's too real, movie. It's too real. <laughs> but it's because I focus so heavily on those, those elements yeah. of the commentary. That the religious commentary kind of, I didn't fix it on that. So um, yeah, there's there more that you want that you have to say about that. What what other? No, like um, because like you, I was I was pretty focused on um, what they were trying to talk about socially, but it just it struck my curiosity because I was wondering why it's there. Um, I was appreciative of why it was there, but I just wasn't in full understanding of it because I didn't obviously took enough time to think about it. But it, it was an interesting thing because it was it was apparent and it was present the entire time. But I was curious to what it was trying to add on top of all the social themes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I stand by the fact that Christianity is so ingrained into Americana. Yeah. And and the breaking away from religion and breaking, breaking away from belief structures and the templates that they've been put into place, whether it's a reaction to religion or just the law, yeah. the law of the land um, – Growth springs from that, and mm. re- rebelling from that is how we get revolutionaries. <laughs> yes, like uh, a release from repression. Yes. And most of it is like self-repression because like like you mentioned, Tobey Maguire, he's not even from that world, but he bought into the status quo because he wanted to be safe. He did not want to harm himself mm-hmm. or anyone around him, especially with his sister and whatnot because she's kind of a loose cannon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, it's kind of funny – when that happens to us, whenever wherever we are, because mm-hmm. you know you're comfortable in your own home and your own space and whatnot, but when you go outside, you just instantly you you play by the rules because you don't want to like muck up the the status quo. Well, it's yeah. it to continue with the commentary of today. Mm-hmm. What's outside of Pleasantville? Oh, don't 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 think about that. We're fine. Just goes here. in a circle. It just goes in a circle. What's at the end of Main Street? The Elm Street, silly. <laughs> That closed-minded nature of Pleasantville versus look at the world at large. Look, think bigger. It's bigger than here mm-hmm. is why we have such a divide in this country versus uh, that is the Rust Belt and the Bible Belt versus the Coast Cities. Yeah. It's as plain as that. It's as plain as getting into a bigger environment, into a bigger world, expands your mind. You can't I, – I don't feel people can truly be 
as close-minded if they're smack dab in the middle of a melting pot. Yeah. It's just simpler and easier to just look in front of you and see your neighbor that you recognize and a face you, you trust. <laughs> Don't worry about what's out beyond these these uh, these roads and walls. Mm. We're fine here. Everything's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the, but Tobey Maguire, I don't think he was doing anything wrong. He, the first half of this movie, until they get it, the setup basically to, uh, to get into Pleasantville, into the show, Tobey Maguire just wants that simplicity. He wants that joy that he sees on TV, that the good mom and the loving sister and the, 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 you got it, son, ch- uh, dad. Yeah. And the, he wanted that. He desired that. That was sad because he had such a a complicated life that's no different than so many people's life. A yeah. broken home and not make you know not having being in high school, especially not being as cool as you want to be, or yeah. not being able to talk to the girl like you want to talk to. And he fought that when they first got to Pleasantville. He's like, no, this needs to stay this way. It's pure. It's perfect. You're ruining it. But as the seeds start to grow and he, he sees the mistake in that, his, he changes with everything. And, and what causes people to truly change? Yeah. What, what causes them to, sh- to let their true self come through is different for everyone. It's not the sex that some of the characters have. It's the, re- the release of that, getting away from that repression. Yeah. Or truly embracing your true nature. Yeah, and when he punched Whitey in the face for attacking Joan uh, Joan uh, Allen Joan Allen's character, like that was finally letting go of this fantasy world and facing a reality, which is no, this is wrong. This world is wrong. Pow! <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag punch Nazis. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Captain America would do it, <laughs> <laughs> or Reese Witherspoon growing up, yeah, and and not she did the slut phase as she said, <laughs> she, and once she embraced the more adult nature of her of a future she could have, and and yeah. seen a bigger picture and the kind of person she could be. Mm-hmm. To no, I don't want to go down to Lover's Lane with you. Yeah, I want to study. That's well, that's why I found so interesting about those two characters because. The the entire time when everyone was changing in the colors, there's they were like, why are we still black and white and yeah. stuff like that? But they haven't found their their kind of interchange just yet. They um, they hadn't let go of what they thought was true. Yes, they did not. They didn't find the truth in themselves and the truth of the worlds that mm. they exist in, whether it's Pleasantville or the real world. Absolutely. It's like for Toby, it was just like I got to keep all my emotions. Even keeled and check, just suppress it all the way down because no, like obviously no one's been there for him. He's been very isolated, vibrant by himself. His only catharsis is through this TV show, mm-hmm. and so um, by maintaining status quo in Pleasantville means he gets to keep his TV show. And for uh, Reese Witherspoon, Mary Sue slash Jennifer's character, mm-hmm. I think popularity her social status in high school was what was important to her. Yeah, and maintaining that that front. That kind of cloak, um, in order to like climb up the social ladder after you know what's her face transferred to a different school and then the popular guys starting to like her and whatnot. <laughs> like that's what she thought she desired because that was the status quo. But then once she discovered herself through through text, through books, through literature, mm-hmm. and and starting to think, hey, I actually like 
what I was making fun of, and I didn't realize I was making fun of that only because that's what I was told I should be doing. Yeah. By the society around me, and so that was really fascinating. I didn't I didn't take it as like sex is bad and blah 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 this and that, but no, like no no, I actually thought it was really sex positive because the entire time she was very promiscuous, but other folks weren't labeling her as a slut. Mm-hmm. That's just something she said herself, and I thought that was so cool. This is very, I mean, it's not as radically feminist as as some of the works today, but it was pretty feminist for a 1998 film. Yeah, <clears throat> and using the 50s, uh, 58 yeah. specifically the year, as this liberation, as the time that this would be set in, as, liberating fr- as liberated as these characters become in this era, the the jukebox, the, the greaser combing his hair, <laughs> right? That is the real, um, as real as it, as it was depicted in the movie, the real 50s, the fake 50s was on television propaganda right and, and well that's what they, they were pleasant those those shows of the past the things they showed on television those were pleasant yeah and that was the america that people wanted to believe was real but if you paid any sort of attention to the reality it, the reality it was promiscuous and smoking and kids being rebellious rebellious teenagers is not a new concept <laughs> it wasn't a new concept then it was Always, yeah. <laughs> Particularly in American history, a rebellious teenager was just the way of things. Yeah, sure. A rebellious teenager in the Dark Ages was probably more like a rebellious eleven-year-old because people died younger. <laughs> rebellious youth, Dark was, Ages joke. <laughs> rebellious <laughs> youth was it, and always will be a thing, and it's just a difference between what we see or what we're given mm-hmm. versus what is real yeah mad men is perfect for this if you have any sort of interest in exploring the post-korean war through the through jfk and the moon landing and martin luther king jr and up through the 60s and women's lib and that era of america the vietnam war mad men is an amazing uh, presentation of that because it it doesn't present it in the the way other shows of that era have. Yeah. Uh, something like Wonder Years presents it from a a young uh, hippie hippie kid. Um, not not like a his sister was a free love hippie Forrest Gump kind of <laughs> style, but um, or if you look at something like Sandlot, which also takes place in a similar era, they still have the sheen of fantasy to them. Yeah. And something like Mad Men says, oh, no, people were taking – girls were on the pill. <laughs> <laughs> Vietnam vets had post-traumatic stress even oh. back then. Oh, sweet Jesus. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, but Ple- Pleasantville addresses some of these issues in such an, a, a wonderful way. Yeah. Um, yeah uh, they weren't afraid to call out the hypocrisy because I, I still get upset to this day when folks like my my own family – Say, oh, I miss, <clears throat> for instance, I miss American cinema, like back in the fifties or whatever. Oh, back when you mean where the studio system controlled everyone and <laughs> <laughs> there was no people of color whatsoever. It's just it's a straight fantasy. It's like what we mentioned earlier. It's it's propaganda, mm-hmm. and and yeah. while we we like to romanticize those times, but um, yeah. I, I was listening to a great interview with Pulitzer Prize winner um, Viet Thanh Nguyen, who just wrote uh, the recent Sympathizer, and he he loves Apocalypse Now. But being a Vietnamese refugee himself is such a slanted view on the war itself. And all the Vietnamese folks in that film mm-hmm. were either the enemy or they were prostitutes and stuff like that. And so, like, 
as great as escapist entertainment as these Hollywood productions are, especially of that time. Yeah. Um, Apocalypse Now is obviously the 70s, but just using it as, as an example, buying it for face value can be dangerous because it's a slanted view. It, it's biased view, and mm-hmm. and it changes the perception of how you view other people. And so just seeing something like Pleasantville is great because obviously there's a bias, but it's looking at the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. And how we treat folks, and how we perceive fear and fear mongering, and the oh, dangers yeah. of, oh, yeah. of scare tactics in, in in hate speech and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was really, it's a lot deeper than what you would take it for on surface value, right? Because yeah. it really is. It's oh, it's a it's black and white world that starts turning into color. But and and a lot of this, of the commentary is not hidden. It's very upfront. Yeah. But you really can peel back a lot of layers here and explore each individual character through their journey in this world. Uh, but this movie is 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 very impressive from just from the script even. Yeah. The the rules are established for this world and for Pleasantville itself right right up front, and it's not that heavy handed ex- exposition. Yeah. Like the the rules are given. Like even something as simple as it's a new TV. It doesn't work without a remote. Mm. Has there ever been a TV that doesn't work without a remote? <laughs> but it's it's a rule that they adhere to. They put it out there. It exists, and it, and you don't question it mm. because it works for the narrative. Um, I I liked the very indie style of the of the of the real world. Yeah, it it did not feel like a big Hollywood blockbuster. It felt in that same vein as like Election. Yes, a kind of uh, low budget independent film. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there were some sequences before they trans, even in Pleasantville, mm-hmm. where they were just going handheld. Oh yeah, yeah. The I was like, it, it threw me off a little bit. I don't know if I liked it, but it added that independent value to the film. The the uh, handheld moments in Pleasantville were very specific. Yeah, the moments that they chose were very specific. The bowling ball shot is one that I can think of that was. It might have been on rails, but it was still a little wobbly. Um, when he jumps the counter to chase her out, there's like specific moments handheld is used. But the the cinematography in this is brilliantly handled. It's yes. very very deliberate to Hitchcock and the Twilight Zone. Mm. The use of Dutch angles when the world starts being rocked. Yes, it's very very expertly done. It's, it's very cleverly done. Absolutely, and it's always uh, the focus point was on Tommy McGuire when um, uh, Reese Witherspoon's character mm. was defying him and his request to like obey the the <laughs> said rules of the world. Yeah, they were using those Dutch angles on him. Mm-hmm. It was just like, oh, that's so, that's so cool. His world's literally getting rocked. <laughs> <laughs> the the low angle looking up at the the chairman, the the big, uh, big the, Bob, Big Bob, yeah. yeah. The the dark lighting when William H Macy comes home and and Joan Allen's not waiting for him. Honey, I'm home. <laughs> Where's my dinner? <laughs> Where's my dinner? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the camera work in this is so well done. And even go one step further, the impressive nature of this, 1998. This movie has more special effects in it than Star Wars The Phantom Menace. No way. Yes, because they had to they had to film black and white in so many sections and then colorize it in post. Oh, wow. Which, that's a frame-by-frame frame situation yeah. right there. Uh, this scene where Joan Allen gets the, the paint on her face, the makeup on her face to hide her, her true colors was green screen. They had to paint her in green. What? And just like when she goes to... Jeff Daniels, mm. and he sees the the paint underneath, or her real color underneath her paint. She's wearing all green too, <laughs> and, they had to, and they had to take the green paint off. That's so impressive. 
There's an incredible amount of special effects in this, and those are my favorite special effects. The yeah. special effects that exist without you going, like, really fixating on them. Yeah. Like, yes, uh, Transformers, that's, that's, that's nothing but special effects. That doesn't mean anything. Yeah. The simplicity of, and the complication, <laughs> the complexity of the special effects in Pleasantville is, is another tip of the hat to, yeah. to the the great nature of this film yes i mean the fact that i didn't realize it was vfx is all the more impressive yeah Yeah. i mean think about how how would they have accomplished black and white and color at the same time it would have to be a special effect so sometimes characters are in color sometimes they are not sometimes Mm -hmm. it's the reverse where they have to colorize or decolorize it's amazing amount of detail when the special effects of this film and fun fact this was the first uh hollywood production to be scanned colored and recorded on 2k digital wow yeah wow all right look at that landmark film right there it's insane you don't because every time we talk about special effects we think about what are the landmark films of the the 90s or whatever it's jurassic park matrix Mm -hmm. uh terminator 2 you never say pleasantville (laughs) (laughs) it's sometimes it's it's a surprise what the the revolutionary film was 28 days later is the first handheld digital camera film. Yes. Right. They filmed on handheld camcorders, <laughs> a completely digital film. That's, well, really, that was the one that tipped it off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on this because Gary Ross is someone who I kind of consider hackish okay. a little bit. Because you look at his filmography and this was this was his debut this film. This was his debut, his directorial debut, major motion picture directorial debut. Very impressive. If you were to start with this, you would have thought, "Oh, this guy has quite a career." And not to bag on him because obviously he's gone he's working on Ocean's 8 currently right now with uh, <laughs> the all-female cast. But <laughs> <laughs> That's for another time. <laughs> but uh I mean, you look at Sea Biscuit, The Hunger Games, Free State of Jones. These are like you would not say these are marquee films by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, they are studio films. Don't get me wrong, but yes, they don't. Th- they don't innovate. They don't. They aren't these landmark films. They are right. Pleasantville is such a distinct film in that catalog, right? And the rest are so like bland, studio-driven fluff pieces mm-hmm. that you kind of wonder what. I mean. I guess I'm just looking at it as a pretentious artist, but the <laughs> fact that he built a career off this smaller film, which bombed, by the way, really it oh. it made or it cost sixty and made forty oh, back to box is, office. That is too bad. Yeah, but I, surely there has to be. Uh, a, a, Don't call me Shirley. <laughs> <laughs> this film has done better since, I would imagine. Yeah, the, the home market syndication yeah. definitely. I mean, it's on TNT all the time yeah. now. So there, there ha- I I know there has to be a following for this movie because of the. I know plenty of people who, like, if I bring it up, are willing to have a conversation about it. Yeah, even if it's as as simple as the soundtrack to this movie. Which, speaking of the soundtrack, we're we're talking about interesting choices, like. Uh, the uses of handheld in certain points and the 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 imagery that is surely to many respects the music choices in this movie are amazing yes i i had to look it up because there was there was one song in particular that really caught my attention and it's in the scene where the books the huckleberry finn becomes a full book dave brubeck's uh take five yes yeah i i'm as that scene was playing out i, I that was one of the scenes i've i sticks with me 
um, be it my literary nature or my my love for reading and Huckleberry Finn in particular, and even Catcher in the Rye, which is mentioned at the end of that scene. Yeah, I was really honed in on that scene and just kind of picking out something I had noticed before, which was the music. Mm-hmm. And the music being the five and five is in five five time. Yes. Not Four four time, mm-hmm. the common time of jazz, the common time of most popular music, to to use that song deliberately there to be this one two three four five one two three four it changes even the soundtrack subconsciously that makes that scene that much more effective. Yes, because it's not giving you the the common rhythm; it's giving you an uncommon rhythm. It's throwing you off balance. Yeah, and and that <laughs> scene is wonderfully handled in there that that's that's one of those moments that uh it's another touchstone of the film that pushes the world into the next era that it exists in (laughs) yeah absolutely um that scene really stuck out with me only because i love that song (laughs) and they used it in such a way where it created a lot of anticipation a lot of it, it gave it a great bounce like the the editing in that scene it was so back and forth looking at like they were asking Toby questions. Toby was answering them questions. It was going back and forth and this and that. Yeah. And it was so – it was just a really masterfully executed, just like you mentioned. And I, I love the Fiona Apple cover of Across the Universe at the end. Oh, yeah. The the like, It was a little tear to my eye because it's such yeah. a moving song in, in her voice, in her cadence, and in her style to end the movie with that. Though, you know, one might think that could be just, oh, they picked the pop song of the time. No, the song was written for the movie. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a Beatles song. It, well, no. Yeah. Her her cover oh, okay. was written for the movie. Yeah. I know it's a Beatles song. <laughs> I was going to say, sorry, sorry, what the heck? Everyone relax. <laughs> <laughs> Grab your torch and pitchforks. <laughs> but uh, choosing that, that cover in particular, yeah. because the Beatles and Across the Universe, oh, shoot, I just blanked on what album that came off of. They were uh, part of the the movement away from the black and white era of pop culture into yeah. the colorful psychedelic nature of the 60s. Was this Sgt. Pepper? No, it was before Sgt. Pepper. Okay. Someone listening right now is like, you idiot! <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, really, when this mo- when you come down to it, this movie is about a psychotic older man who kidnaps two children to play out his fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, there's something, there's some weird molesty <laughs> undertones definitely under, I don't know, like, well, we can get into nit- nitpicking a little bit later, but um, <laughs> just to – if there's anything else that you wanted to mention, I, I would I just want to talk about the ending just real quick because – Certainly. I thought – because there's, there's two ways you could have ended it. The way they did, mm-hmm. or you could have ended it after Toby had his moment with moment his mother. With his mom. They, bef- instead of returning back to Pleasantville yeah. and having Joan uh, Allen say, you know, what happens next. Mm-hmm. And having that song in the background where they're just saying, like, it's basically saying, you know, nothing's going to change my world. Mm-hmm. And what does that even mean? Like, their world's changed, but it's it's what's changed. The world's the same, but it's you that changed. Yes. I'm just making this up as I think. I'm, just, I'm going along <laughs> right now, so I'm just feeling. That's okay. <clears throat> but what I loved about it so much was, like, it wasn't happy per se, but it was deeply profound because now these characters can – Etch their their path as as they want it to. They can live freely. Yeah, blaze, and, blaze their own trails. Yeah, and fully too. Because before, like Jeff Daniels' character didn't even know what to do if he didn't have his partner in the restaurant opening the restaurant mm-hmm. with him. What do I? I just been wiping the counter here. I know. 
but now he can be an artist. Joan Allen, or yeah, Joan Allen can be with him and mm-hmm. like be herself and doesn't have to cook dinner all the time and stuff like that. <laughs> it's it's really nice. Maybe it's just hitting me at a time in my life where I'm just trying to figure out my own life and stuff like that. And yeah. it's just a reminder that you don't need to know all the answers. You don't need to know the outcome mm-hmm. before the outcome happens. You just need to have those daily victories and stuff like that and just live. Yeah. And, There's something to be said about William H. Macy sitting next to her, so her ex-husband. You know, what 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 happens next? I don't know. And then honing in on her and then panning back over. And now Jeff Daniels sitting there and he says, I don't know either. Yeah. And that's great. That's yes. okay. That That's the message there is like no one knows what's coming next. All we can do is move forward yeah. and, <laughs> and face it. If Oh, boy. I, let's, let's talk about the actors before we get into – move away from the movie and talk more about where we stand in this world. <laughs> let's, let's, let's start off Tobey Maguire. Mm-hmm. Perfectly cast for this role. He he plays. It's very Peter Parker. Like, even going so far <laughs> as the where he's talking to the girl from across the the playground or yeah. the, the parking lot, and that's very similar to when he waves at Mary Jane and she's not looking at him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I thought Tom McGuire was wonderful in this film. Yeah, like he he played this. He's the one who goes on the journey. All these characters go on the journey, but he's the he's Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz. He leaves home and returns home. I always thought – I always wonder what his career would have been like if he didn't do Spider-Man because there was a very interesting indie route that he could have went. He could have yeah. been – He's in uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Is he? <laughs> he's, a very, he's a very small part in that. Um, he. This movie was okay. It wasn't all that great. But he himself made it – it elevated from like a meh to a – wow, this is actually a pretty cool performance. It was uh, Brothers. Oh, right. Was that Jake Gyllenhaal? Yeah. Natalie Portman and mm-hmm. him? Yeah. When he came back, and he was an Iraq, Iraqi vet with PTSD. Yeah, he was nominated for a Gold Globe for that. Yes, yeah. and deservingly so, because we always expected this sugary, sweet boy next door, Tobey Maguire, but he he just he had an inner inner freak in him, you know, like in that <laughs> film. So I thought, you know, that it showed his range, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I'm just afraid Spider Man kind of typecasted him as a certain way. Yeah, and like I obviously he got to do that post Spider Man, but I just wonder what his catalog would have been. Because doing a superhero film takes up so many years of your life, especially mm-hmm. in a popular franchise like Spider-Man. If you imagine three movies, that that must have taken a decade to make. Yeah. And like he didn't get to do smaller projects in between like Christian Bale did. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of sad for me to think about that. <laughs> he, shru- he truly shows his ability in this film by playing a very wonderful everyman. Yeah. And that's, that is that is a type that some people just can't nail. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not the pretty boy like Paul Walker. And Paul Walker is perfectly cast in this role. He plays a wonderful. <laughs> Gee, gosh, like, Mary Sue. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, you bud. <laughs> like uh, uh, Reese Witherspoon. You know, I, 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 it didn't dawn on me until I was just finishing. I'm like, oh yeah, we did Election so recently, and now we did another Reese Witherspoon movie. She is so freaking talented. Yes, yeah, so and, much. She is a national treasure. To go from, <laughs> <laughs> to go from, to go from like uppity Tracy Flick. Mm-hmm. To like promiscuous, um, actually very savvy Mary Sue slash Jennifer. Yeah, it shows her versatility. Even though on the surface it seems like very you know vapid MTV generation music video style mm-hmm. films, but later on in her career she gets to prove even more. And just hearing her talk uh, at these roundtables, she's such a smart woman. She's oh, building yeah. her own like empire right now as a production company. She produced Gone Girl and whatnot, and she's 
everything that she does right now, she's she's able to do so because of the films that she laid down, like Election and like Pleasantville. So, yeah, she survived yeah. being a, a young, not exactly a child actress per se, but she started very young. Yeah. She hit the scene with, like, Cruel Intentions. Mm-hmm. Um, but she she blew up with Legally Blonde. Yeah. Uh, but then she's gone to like last year with Wild. Yeah. Which you made one of your favorite movies of last year. Loved it. Uh, and look at her. She really is the best part of Walk the Line. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Like, that overrated film. <laughs> Wa- Wa- Joaquin is great and, yeah. and all, but uh, Reese Witherspoon shines in that film, deservedly so. Of the She won an Oscar for that, right? Yeah, she did. Yeah, deservedly so. As June Cash. Um, with, uh, Joan Allen. Joan Allen. She's been around a while. I don't feel like she has anything that's incredible in her catalog. Yeah. But she is so good in everything she's been in. Like uh, Room last uh, two years Room, ago. She was all the Bourne movies. Yep. Um, if you ever seen Upside of Anger, that's a really cool uh, vehicle for her as a star because mm-hmm. she's usually like the supporting player. She's usually the mom. She's usually the, the best mom. friend. Yeah. Uh, she, she's so talented though. Yeah. I, th- like she doesn't get a whole lot of screen time in Pleasantville. Mm-hmm. But all the, like the very um, the intimate moments, you know. Yeah, I I would disagree because she does have a fair amount of screen time yeah. in here, but her character doesn't start until the first time she has a conversation with Reese Witherspoon about yeah, that's right. what what is sex? What sex, yeah. Mary Sue? Yeah, that that's like the beginning of her story. Which, as a criticism of the film, the relationship with Toby and his mom that ends yeah. the movie. Feel like he didn't really have a relationship with Joan Allen as his mother. Yeah, and the, uh, an easy way to to remedy that would be to establish them some sort of connection for them mm. way quicker in the yeah. film. But then again, maybe that might not be the point of his journey. It wasn't about his mother. Um, I, I, and, mm. boy, you know what? Uh, taking a split second to analyze this, his relationship with just women in general is changed through the course of this film. That's true. Because he starts by just seeing this girl he likes because she's pretty. Mm. He doesn't know anything about her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? And and how he treats his sister and how he fantasizes the world of Pleasantville and how he even rejects the girl when she offers him the cookies. Like, that's not... He, he has such a, an a interesting relationship development of how he treats women over the course of the film. That maybe it wasn't just necessarily a father and a uh, sorry a a son and a mother, yeah. but just a a boy who becomes a man who can learn to appreciate women. I don't know. Is that could there be a subtext there or a, a subplot there, a sub theme maybe? I think that analysis is fair. Yeah. Um, I, I I'm on there with you though with the critique about the mother because mm-hmm. I feel like the payoff was supposed to be very emotionally resonant, but it wasn't earned. I yeah. don't I don't feel like because. Um, Lois from Malcolm in the Middle. <laughs> I, she wasn't. She was hardly there, and mm-hmm. she didn't need a lot of screen time. Like you said, it could have been a line or two. Yeah. Like, oh, we should hang out more, Mom, or whatever. It's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm busy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, brush him off or whatever. Because there is a a thirst for a matriarchal figure in his life. He's looking for someone. Yeah. And that's the very interesting thing about his character is because you know in all these coming of age films, it's always about the father and the son. Mm-hmm. But never, there's never like a matriarchal relationship that's explored. Mm-hmm. I feel like it missed the mark, and a, it was a missed golden opportunity here to kind of showcase that relationship. Yeah, and, and, and it would only service this movie to make it that much stronger of a film. Yeah, yeah. It, and and while the 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 social and political overtones or undertones were the main driving catalyst to this film thematically, I do feel like at its emotional core, 
it was supposed to be that relationship because that was the final that was essentially the final shot at the reality that was supposed to be the payoff but i just didn't feel like it was earned and this actually is a perfect segue to my one of my main critiques of the film yeah go ahead i think everything was done so masterfully in terms of like telling the story to serve its themes mm-hmm. that that's all it was focused on and it gave us kind of flat characters because I, I do agree like the antagonist is the idea of prejudice right but big bob he was he wasn't a fearsome mm-hmm. antagonist he was just kind of like he was there to be a roadblock. Yeah, they, yeah. Certainly, there's more caricatures than characters. Yeah, in definitely. The film. Um, now, I to counter that mm-hmm. argument, it is a once upon a time. This is true. And fairy tales and once upon a time stories tend to use caricatures in order to present themes. Yes, that that is the point of fairy tales, mm-hmm. in my in my opinion. Yes. So, I I, I can agree and disagree with you on that because. When you really look at the nuanced performances of some of the of the actors in this, yeah, that's where you see the characters. Yes, and uh, William H Macy did a good job. Uh, we said Toby and Reese and Joni Allen. I love Jeff Daniels in this movie. He was he was probably one of the like the the best in terms of it doesn't jump off at you right away off the screen, but it's yeah. extremely subtle, extremely quiet. He's he's the quietest character in the entire film, but his arc says so much. About change. Yes. Oh my gosh, his I it's this time, this time watching it did I truly appreciate just how talented of an actor yeah. someone like Jeff Daniels is. And the character what he brought to the character and the character on the page also has some amazingly interesting stuff. He's the one who gets the 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 nudges in the direction from Bud, um Toby McGuire's character, to like, you know, next time you can do it yourself. <gasps> okay. And um, you can do it yourself. Okay, I, uh, you, the painting, the scene that got me, that that really solidified just how much I love Jeff Daniels' performance in this and the character himself is in the courtroom when he says, uh, why don't you just tell me what colors I can use? Or or maybe I'll just I'll just use black and like whatever. Just let me keep painting, please. I'll do whatever. And Bud standing up and saying, no, that's not how this works. You, I, And he stands up for Jeff Daniels. But that, that Jeff Daniels being so desperate to just, I just want to do this. Please don't take this from me. And I'll, that submissive nature of his character yeah. is so powerfully sad yes. to the state of a society that demands that of people, to mm-hmm. fall in line. Okay, I will fall in line, but can I please continue to do what I love? Like, that's <laughs> No! That's so, that's so powerful. <laughs> Stop dreaming, idiot. <laughs> now, <laughs> actually, you get you got my wheels turning, TC. Mm-hmm. Because now that I'm thinking about it, well, I'll, I'll preface with this. I think the most well-rounded slash satisfying character arc would have to be Mary Sue slash Jennifer. Because mm-hmm. I feel she went through the most metamorphosis, the biggest transformation. Yeah. But I think the best performances is definitely Jeff Daniels and Joan Allen in that and because um, not only did their characters serve like the bigger theme, mm-hmm. but also the way they played it, I'm almost seeing it as though they are victims of abuse because the way they behave in such a way is it's They're not wounded, very wounded. Yeah, they fall in line only because they've been, it's been hammered into their subcon- into their consciousness of this is how you should be mm-hmm. over and over again to where you know victims of oppression they 
sometimes they don't even know they're oppressed. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, so yeah. the way they pl- the way that they played it, you're right. It's so it's childlike. Almost. It's so innocent. When yeah, they, when they see each other for the first time, and you got to think in the universe of Pleasantville, mm-hmm. you got to wonder if the character of the mother and the character of uh, that Jeff Daniels played had ever actually met. Yes. And but they're aware of each other in the universe yeah. because like he works with Bud, so he would know Bud's mom. Like that's idea of these two characters meeting, which felt like the first time seeing each other and and feeling that 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 connection immediately through the doorway, and and even Bud kind of like okay bye, <laughs> <laughs> awkward linger. <laughs> yeah, their their exploration of love and. The innocence of understanding what that means is so beautifully handled by yeah. these two incredibly underrated actors. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And I loved how this could be the direction, but also how Joan Allen played her character the moment where she was in the kitchen crying until we asked, was asking her what's wrong yeah. and stuff like that. And, you know, obviously this character is going through change because she did something where she is out of character for her and it's it's so this act that she does it's looked down upon it's viewed as as dirty it's yeah. sinful yeah. <laughs> yeah but but she's enjoying it and she's enjoy and she should enjoy it freely but like looking at it in a societal context and her societal context she felt really bad like a kid being in trouble it's just I, like i it, made a mistake i'm yeah. sorry i'm sorry and it's so like you said it's so sad but it's also so it's it's a moment in the it's the beginning of the journey for these characters. Yeah. To to be told no you're not wrong. Mm-hmm. You have nothing to be sorry for. And those aren't the words directly said to them, but she overcomes that fear and herself and the choices she's making later when she's when he's when William H Macy's like you will be here at six o'clock every night and dinner will be served every day. <laughs> and she said, "No, no, I'm no jackass." <laughs> but not no. She's not mean to him. Yeah, that's that's another thing about. And we might be able to use this to segue into to kind of conversing more about the state of affairs now. But she's not cruel. Her reaction to being repressed is an anger and hate, and she's not throwing that back at the people repressing her. She's just being clear. No, I'm not going to come back here. Yeah. And without saying it, she is saying, and you know that. Yes. And you know why. And you know that is what has to happen. Resist. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, uh, Bill, which is um, Jeff Daniels' character, and Betty, which is Joan Allen's character, uh, part of me wonders if that the idea of those two characters coming together might come from, in, in a way, fan fiction thinking of old TV shows and, and that thinking of like, oh, wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice if this character... And th- I would I always like to imagine this character and this character had a little thing going on on the side. <laughs> on the side. I, I always like to imagine Mr. Brady and Alice, you know, had a little thing going on the <laughs> Hashtag side. Hashtag side piece. <laughs> <laughs> so just... Uh, obviously, not that's not real because it's not a real show. But, the, you know, the, the idea of imagining characters breaking out of their restrictions yeah. in in a in a fan fantasy sort of way. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And they, they kind of embrace that simple element of... Just like, what if Phyllis got together with Rhoda? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's, you know, Rule 43, it exists. <laughs> <laughs> it's... Oh, man, I, this movie's so neat, and it's so poignant to now, because it's it's about... This is how the... Th- this is how the way thing. This is the way things are. This is how they've always been, and this is good. Yeah. Why are you fighting against it? Stop trying to change what's so great. We need to spin our wheels. We need to go around in circles in this town, and we can't leave this town, and we can't leave the way things are. No, because you don't go anywhere, mm-hmm. and you will never go anywhere if you keep spinning your tires. This movie is this wonderful piece that shows revolution and rebellion give us art and music and joy and literature and the more you try to hold back change and progress and the desire to be more Mm -hmm. the bigger and harder and better all those things like art and music and and life are going to be yeah we are in a very to some people scary time in this country Mm -hmm. to them to more of the majority of voters we are in a much different time than we all thought we were going to be yes and the best thing that's going to come out of this which we are already seeing is the art Mm -hmm. of the people of the revolution of the resistance of the rebellion that's what happens when you try to be a totalitarian yes when you try to be an authoritarian you can't stop progress progress needs to happen or we'd all still be living in caves (laughs) we'd all still be Maybe we should, TC. <laughs> We'd all still be riding horses. We'd yeah. all still be sailing boats mm-hmm. with oars instead of motors. Like progress needs to happen for us to get anywhere in this world. And the more you fight against the progress, the more you're going to hurt the people that need the change. Absolutely. <laughs> Woo! The, the, the graffiti that they paint to, sh- like, to show the town, the, to just blatantly say, no, look at this. Yeah. This is you. We're burning books. Mm-hmm. Are you kidding me? <laughs> At that, there's two moments in this movie in Pleasantville that that got me. That this time around choked me up. And it's when Jeff Daniels sees the paintings in the book for the first time, and he, and the music is that's playing underneath that scene is so perfectly cued, and his the wonderment he he has in seeing the potential of others who have d- gone before him is beautiful and that I, I love that moment and, and i've just totally blanked on the other moment because i'm fixating on jeff daniel's experience <laughs> um were, were there any moments for you that just stand out as as incredible moments of this film absolutely and just to go on the themes of like uh moments of resistance is definitely when toby was reading the new laws of the land yeah. to all the the youngsters at the malt shop mm-hmm. And they were all hiding look, in fear, hiding in fear, looking somber and stuff like that. And then the uh, uh, the editor from the Daily Bugle, <laughs> <laughs> that was Doyle, wasn't it? Doyle, yeah, that was his name. <laughs> um, he plays something on the jukebox, and he's like, "Hey, it still works." And then the girl screams at him, "No, we can't do that anymore. That's the rules now. That's the rules now." And then Toby's like, "No, it's not. We still can. We still can't. Like the rules are rules, but that doesn't mean it's just. Mm-hmm. Just like what's happening right now." And all the unconstitutional things that are happening. Just because a law is a law doesn't make it just. But yeah. we can still yeah. be people. 
we can still be compassionate and we can still be revolutionary in our resistance. And so the the other moment that that fired me up and really got me was when they when the town attacks mm-hmm. when the the people who are against the the future and they're when they're burning those books and and Reese Witherspoon is holding on to her book like no this is the first book I've ever actually read you're not going to burn it I'm going to kick you in the balls <laughs> <laughs> it's, shout out to DH Lawrence it's a uh, it's not crazy that a pile of books is getting burned to stop a revolution mm-hmm. that's history yeah. and it's more than one point in history and and it's and and burning down the 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 art and the people is still happening now and, yeah. and silencing the people. And yes, everyone needs to have a voice, whatever whatever your voice might be, but covering your ears against the voices is only hurting yourself. And yes. that goes both ways. That goes for people pro and against the forty fifth president we have. Mm-hmm. And that that moment of the book burning and and Reese Witherspoon fighting it, uh, this girl fighting this, you know, the 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 captain of the basketball team, and saying no, <laughs> Brian no, O'Connell, no, and try, <laughs> trying to reason with him, and he won't take it, and she just kicks him to run away. <laughs> like, yeah, girl, <laughs> <laughs> get him. Uh, what liberates the people? We we've seen what liberates all these characters in this film. Mm what starts changing all these characters is like a simple moment of, Hey, I want to ask Mary Sue. I don't think you should. What? I don't know what I would do if she didn't go out with me. (laughs) (laughs) That was, that was that. I don't know how you took it, but it seemed kind of (laughs) dark. I did. I didn't take it as anything like dark like that. I took it more like, wow, this is a robot who's just (laughs) broken. You just broke his hardwiring right there. (laughs) This program is just error does not compute. (laughs) So uh, no, no darkness there with Paul Walker. No darkness. Broken broken robot moment. (laughs) You had my wheels turning though, TC, about a moment that got me thinking, Mm -hmm. what liberated the people? What set them free and their poor little souls? (laughs) (laughs) I think for me, the most pitiful point was during the climax in the courtroom scene. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the lesson that I, that I took away from that, that scene was the ability to listen to each other. Because, you know, I- even for all the characters still black and white at the bottom of the courthouse, still very much against the people in color and this idea of, you know, we just release your repression or whatever. Just yeah. being against that idea. <clears throat> All it took for them to change their mind was for Toby to have this interaction with William H. Macy and have this very human moment, human connection about, you know, grief of loss mm-hmm. or like uh, losing your way and accepting change and looking to progress and stuff like that. All they had to have was a conversation. And and a quiet one at that. Yeah. Until, and they just had to listen. Yeah. Absolutely. And I understand, like, this is coming from a very privileged standpoint. I don't come from a place where I can't talk or express myself freely. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm one of the louder folks in my family. Mm-hmm. And that's not saying a lot because I'm still a quiet guy. <laughs> <laughs> but that I understand that I come from a place where I can do that. Yeah. So I don't want to say this is a universal thing. But this also brings to my point of where I think – now stop me if this is too much of a tangent. No. But it got me thinking – it provoked my thought a little bit more in terms of, like, 
stories speaking of people or conversations speaking of people, mm-hmm. I think universality of story is overrated. If anything, I think we value it way too much because what we buy as universal, yeah, it's actually we've been conditioned to think one thing or one t- – to, ch- to showcase, t- as an example, the coming-of-age story. Right. We all think one thing when we think coming-of-age. Mm-hmm. And it's the white kid in the high school. <laughs> and that's not to say that's bad, but that's the only viewpoint that we've had this entire time. I thought that way for the longest time. I thought, what? why isn't my life like this and this and that? But something like Moonlight, for example, showcased the specificity in a coming-of-age story to where the specificity instead of the universality of that story, it granted me the ability to feel for someone else that I did not come from. Uh, that background certainly it, yes it's, yes it's, like roger ebert has famously said at sundance cinema is the machine of empathy mm-hmm. and to be able to feel and to put yourself in someone's shoes and behind the lens of another person and to see their world you don't have to experience it you just have to have the empathy the ability to be open to that idea to be open to that lens and that perspective and and you're totally right being being closed-minded not being willing to meet them halfway to listen to that conversation or to listen to their story, that conversation would never be would never been had yeah. if Toby and William H. Macy weren't in agreement to meet in the middle and say, Hey, let's just take some time, you know, uh forget all these other ulterior motives that we have that we may have mm-hmm. for our uh for whatever we're trying to convey each other or try to convince each other. Let's just Listen. Speak from the heart. Just say what's inside you. Yeah, and it, all it took was a moment. Like yeah. Toby was like, "Is it okay if I come over there and we talk or whatever?" He said, "That's not word for word." He's like, "Yeah, I, I'll give you an example, Dad." Yeah, and then Dad was like, "What me?" <laughs> <laughs> and it was consensual. It was nice. It was intimate, and it was profound because yeah. it was so simple. <laughs> you know, the the specificity of it all, just from one person's perspective. Because I don't think there is. I mean to. I think oversimplification of things. I mean, I I overcomplicate things, obviously, mm. <laughs> but like oversimplification of things can be just as dangerous. I think, and it just makes us limit our worldview but, when we oversimplify things and just say, if it's not universal, it's not going to make sense, and then we just put it aside and not look at it at all. Well, the, you you <laughs> offer up a uh, an idea that is the problem now is yeah. that everyone just ass- will. There are people who make assumptions that what they're saying is a universal belief. Yeah. Without having a conversation, yeah. I don't know if I've said it on the cast to you or to you yet, but I am tired of the single talking head because that is not a conversation. That is a person talking to a microphone and to a camera mm-hmm. in a void, and only the people who agree with them are going to listen to them. Yes, not engage with them, not have a conversation with them, just hear them, and that's it. I want to see more talking between people not mm-hmm. yelling but talking you said it yourself meet in the middle yeah if, if two people are on different end zones of a football field truly believing what they believe in those end zones the only way they're going to be able to talk to each other is screaming <laughs> <laughs> that's if, true <laughs> if they just are willing to move away from that stouch belief in their end zone mm. and meet somewhere near that 50 yard line then they can talk Yes, and they absolutely. Don't have to yell. Yep. And they probably won't yell. Yeah, like Bruce Lee famously said, boards don't hit back. <laughs> <laughs> However, I do want to put in a context mm-hmm. that just like we were talking off mic about white supremacy and neo-Nazis and stuff like that. 
there are some perspectives where I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm, there's no way I'm meeting you in the middle. That is just wrong. There is there's moral ethical conduct to be had, and I think that's that's another conversation to be had. But well, no, I, yeah. I'm willing to address it right now. Mm-hmm. I I want to hear those perspectives. Yes, but I want those people to be just as willing to defend that opinion and hear themselves. When yeah. I hear people say, this is the way it is, that's it, period. <laughs> it's like, okay, may I just uh, offer up a counterpoint real quick here? Uh, you think this, this, and this. Well, I want you to look into the faces of these people in front of you and try to tell them that. You're not going to convince anyone here of your beliefs. All you have to do is convince us that you honestly believe what you believe and then the conversation can go from there. But the people who th- – those neo-Nazis – who's the dude who got punched in the face? Uh, I don't want to say his name because I don't want to give him the, a platform. The dude who got <laughs> – the, the Nazi who got punched in Dumb the face. Dumbass who got punched yeah. in the face. <laughs> Which is making great gifs, by the way. <laughs> way to go, Internet. <laughs> I, I was conflicted. Yeah. When I, when I first saw it, I mm. thought, oh, come on, guys. We're not – is violence really the answer, right? <laughs> Like, no, I, I know that's it sounds silly, yeah. but my initial response wasn't to cheer that this person I don't know yeah. got punched in the face. I didn't know who he was. I just saw a guy get hit in the face yeah. and people were, like praising it. And mm. I didn't understand what the heck was going on. Then I looked into it. Then I listened to what that guy had to say. Then I listened to the terrible things he's had to say. Then then the day of the mosque shooting in, in Quebec to say, what was a mosque even doing in one of the most beautiful cities, cities in the world? Yeah. You know what? You deserve to get punched in the face. <laughs> <laughs> and it's all context yeah. in that. And I, no, I'm yeah. all for free speech. I mm-hmm. believe that that is one of our the, the rights we need to hold most dear. But – but First Amendment does not say freedom of speech. First Amendment says the freedom to speak out against the government for its transgressions. Yes. Specifically saying people going out in the streets and saying, we don't like what you're doing. <laughs> that is our First Amendment right of freedom of speech. Yes. Not just to say whatever the hell we want to say. Yes, it's been <laughs> so it's been so bastardized and misconstrued to the point where – like like we said, the the broadening and over generalization and over simplicity of mm-hmm. the Constitution is what's kind of dangerous because I feel like two sane people <laughs> meeting in the middle to have a conversation for me that's acceptable. This is all just my opinion. Of course, it does not reflect the rewatchment. <laughs> <laughs> However, <laughs> the totality and the overall acceptance of Universal freedom of speech is what got us the 45th president. Mm-hmm. It energized a hate group. And, like, the the guy who got punched. Yeah. year ago, two years ago, four years ago, he would not have his platform. Yeah. He got his platform because of our 45th president. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm saying is, like, yes, like, as we were talking about, free, free speech does not equate to hate speech. Because mm-hmm. when you allow that to happen, it breeds more of that. You know what I mean? Like... I feel like there there needs to be a line in the sand somewhere, and this is a, a, an argument of morality and like ethics. So it, it's it's going to be different with different perspectives. But just for me, I don't have time and energy for that. <laughs> I just feel like that stuff needs to be shut down. And like you said a long time ago, um, it, like the Constitution serves the people first. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't they don't serve the government or any other uh, governmental entities. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like it's it's really our job. 
to police free speech, <laughs> more, not the government. <laughs> more people yeah. need to speak up yeah. and not just regurgitate the things they've said, but to, to state their opinion and state it loud and clear. Yeah. The, the problem with someone like the guy who got punched, the problem with people who are, are representative of this new era we live in uh, under this 45th president, the, the problem there is, excuse me, you're letting that person speak for you. So by doing that and not speaking up, that's your voice. You're allowing that to happen. You're allowing that person to be your voice. Yeah. And when you allow someone to speak for you, then those are your words. Yeah. And if you don't stand up to it and say, like, I, yes, they are saying that, but now I have something to say, and this is how I feel. Don't just say, I agree with what everything they're saying. Don't, don't keep – no. <laughs> because, look, I, I don't – fully agree with 100% of anything from one side or the other because that's just silly. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. (laughs) You have to be able to open your mind and speak your voice about certain things. Mm. And then it's a matter of choosing battles because some people are going to just be walls and there there is no point to be talking to them because they're not going to change their mind. The the most you can do is ask them, why do you feel that way? Mm. Please explain to me why you feel that way. And don't just post a meme or post a video with someone else's words. I want you to tell me why you think that way. Absolutely. And, and folks on Facebook, stop posting stuff from Occupy Democrats. <laughs> They're obviously super biased and do not use real sources. <laughs> a movie like Pleasantville opens up so much conversation. And it is – it's unfortunately not streaming on Netflix anymore, yeah. which I was disappointed when I, when I went to watch it. You but must I, acquire it through different means. I have the DVD. Thank oh, okay, you. nice. <laughs> Um, and, but the if you can watch this movie, if you have any sort of of love for cinema, but cinema with commentary that isn't super. I, I don't know. Someone would argue that this is a super uh, one sided argument, or, or it's. it's um, I'm trying. <laughs> I saw an essay saying this was the most liberal film they've yes, ever seen. I saw that headline too, yeah. and, and I was trying to avoid saying that. But that that is that that is crazy. I think that this movie offers up a lot of conversation we had about filmmaking, about acting, about directing, about a script. Yeah. Like, if you just want to look at it from that base level, it's it's incredible. There's a lot here to to be studied. This is a first-time director, writer-director. This is a directorial debut. That it's crazy. Is, that is something worth studying just from a film perspective. But from a, a, a social commentary perspective, there's so much to dig into here. Yeah. I, there's There's – I would be surprised if this isn't a kind of movie that is showed in school and not yeah. just when substitute teachers are around, but someone who uh, – this is – it's February. Okay, this is a perfect time to watch a movie like this in Black History Month. Yes. And now, <clears throat> granted, there's – I don't think there's a single black person in this entire movie. <laughs> which which I will address soon. But <laughs> I will, yeah, we please can, go ahead. We, can, bro- we yeah. can go into that right after this. But, <laughs> but, now, that being the case, um, I, I – I do still think that there's so much representative of the civil rights movement of the 50s into the 60s ingrained into this film. Despite the fact that there are no people of color in this film, there are people of color, and perhaps that is the point because a a message like this or a conversation being started by by this needs to be addressed to the people who need to have have this addressed to them the most, and that – I hate to use the word privileged mm-hmm. as as seems to be a buzzword of the day, <laughs> but privileged folks such as myself uh, who come from middle-class white upbringing need to see something like this 
to be willing to have a conversation about it. Yes. And that's, that's why I think this movie works so well on so many levels mm. and is a great movie for this month. Um, certainly there's other movies that are much better than this. <laughs> but no, this this movie does represent a, um, a point of conversations that should and should be had and continue to be had. Yes, absolutely. I agree. Um, the only one trepidation that I had while watching this movie the entire time was I hope people don't walk away thinking this is the end all be all of racial commentary in film. No, it's, <laughs> it's the beginning of the campaign. This is this is just intro one oh one folks. <laughs> <laughs> because I, if anything, I hope this is a gateway film. Yes. Into into watching something like Do the Right Thing or Moonlight mm-hmm. or anything before Spike Lee went crazy. <laughs> 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 because I think it brings out great themes, but it doesn't bring up historical and systemic context. Yes. Because yes. the the dangerous part of calling <laughs> of white folks calling other white folks colored mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is just so oversimplified. It's literally because they turned into color. And I understand it's before it's for allegorical purposes. Yes. However, it makes to, to the simpler minds, I don't want to talk down to people, but mm-hmm. to folks who just want to take it for surface value, the reason why I think some folks think racism is over is because they think racism is just name calling or yeah. is it just prejudice based on looks. Mm-hmm. We don't understand that to be black in America, your existence is based on an amendment, not a constitutional right. Like when the constitution was written, they were written by slave owners <laughs> and that stuff still bleeds into our education system or prison to pipeline system mm-hmm. and stuff like that, that you know should be talked about, but it's not. And it's not going to be addressed in a film like Pleasantville. But I, I in hoping you, audience who watches this film, it becomes a gateway to watching those other films. Certainly, yeah, one hundred percent. This, mm-hmm. this, you said it the best that this is this is civil rights one hundred and one. Yeah, this is the introductory course. Okay? Yes, <laughs> if if anything was triggered in you to to want to go further, to experience more, to to understand more, there is so much deeper and better places to go. This is. This is the Sorcerer's Stones of civil rights movement of, of civil rights <laughs> movies because it's so cute and simple and yeah. it's it's a fairy tale. You got Deathly Hallows down the road. <laughs> okay, you can watch Malcolm X. <laughs> I, like, <laughs> I don't want that uh, that diatribe to take away from the artistry of this film mm-hmm. or or even like the the real sincere authentic attempt at social commentary because what all the things that they were trying to put into a two hour frame is hella impressive TC because it was it was not like we mentioned not just those racial undertones there was stuff about misogyny there was stuff about uh, religion mm-hmm. and the hypocrisy of suburbia yeah. that, that's something we didn't talk about yeah. and we both grew up in a a, a suburban context mm-hmm. and I don't know how your upbringing was but I definitely know being one, one of two Asian households <laughs> and on a like an entire block uh it was it was interesting because I think other folks in that neighborhood were very – they felt unified. They felt in harmonious with one another. But I felt like the outsider, like mm-hmm. at least our family felt like the outsider of that neighborhood. And it was just like the very small microaggressions that were in the way that we were treated. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We were le- There were notes left on our doorstep to mow our lawn even though it was like an, maybe an inch thicker Jeez. than like – 
and it was left anonymously. I hate passive aggressive notes. I know. I was like, what the hell? <laughs> we were just like, if you don't mow your lawn, we're going to have to call the authorities because this is actually a fire hazard. And they're just like, please, <laughs> mow it for us then if you're so concerned I'm about sure, our yeah. lawn. But it's just stuff like that that made us feel like not a part of that suburbia. And it's just, it's funny to watch all these coming of age films because suburbia is reflected in either like a very <coughs> picture perfect white picket fence American dream type mm-hmm. of way or a means of oppression but in a way of like you know you still can do what you want but you're just you're just a kid you know but yeah, yeah. You, you have to do you keep mentioning coming of age movies yeah um St. Vincent, the Bill Murray movie, I found a very good coming-of-age movie, and it's about a 60-year-old man. Yeah. Uh, you can even call American Beauty a coming-of-age movie for, oh, Lester, for Lester, and that's suburbia as well. It's yeah. the dark side of suburbia. Uh, I I grew up in in rel- a relatively small town, neighborhoods, riding bikes on the sidewalk, all that, go down and get some ice cream. Whoop, whoop. But my parents were very encouraging of travel. My dad mm-hmm. traveled around the country coaching, so I've been to every state in the union because yeah. of him and i grew up that way getting out of my hometown and experiencing more than beyond elm street <laughs> is that what your street was called no okay. <laughs> i'm just uh, referencing pleasantville oh yeah the movie, the movie we just watched main street and elm street <laughs> <laughs> so i i hope people will watch this i hope you can seek it out and find it uh, i didn't check if it's streaming on amazon but it's if, not. if you can oh that's no. too bad uh, if you can find pleasantville please give it a watch please let us know what you might think of mm-hmm. it i know you can tweet at ben at benji toes and you can tweet at me at tc's big head oh do you have any recommendations Mike? Uh, to recommend to go in with this yeah. or to go with pleasantville yeah oh boy uh, if you want to go into the breaking out of the sh- of of the structure to 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 rage against the machine, <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> and I, I referenced it at the beginning of of this whole conversation. Truman Show. Yes, it's Ooh, what a pick. Existing in a shell and, and existing in a bubble, to use another popular buzzword of the day, and breaking that bubble and seeing what's beyond is represented in both Truman Show and Pleasantville. And, yeah, um, I I would recommend those from that narrative as well as the cinematic elements the production the the filmmaking aspects of both of those film from script to screen is just so powerful and easily overlooked in both both truman show and pleasantville how about you i was just thinking about this and i'm kind of sad that i couldn't think about i think about a proper civil rights film mm-hmm. i mean just go watch selma but like it has nothing to do with this movie but i think a film that would go well with this film as a back-to-back Using Pleasantville as like a lighter version mm-hmm. of suburbia uh, to look at the darker side, I feel like Revolutionary Road would be an appropriate a ca- oh. companion piece. Oh, geez, yeah, Leo and Kate, yeah, Michael Shannon, <laughs> Michael Shannon to, to to even like Richard Yates's novels, masterclass in Americana literature. So mm-hmm. anyone, if you can dig that book, uh, read the book first because <laughs> the movie is inferior. But the 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 story is a, a wonderful look at just deconstruction of marriage, being married too soon. But the overall piece is just looking at the hypocrisy of suburbia like we were talking about. Because these two characters, they buy into the American dream only because that's what they thought they should do. It's two lost souls. It's the way it's always been done. Exactly. Just like, um, you know, I I, I forgot what my example was. But, like, (laughs) it's just a, a good look at, like, you know, 
two folks who never grew up, never got out of where they lived, and just, you know, got together because they were the only two souls left in town. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, That's so sad. I know. It's it, not an uplifting movie. It is not. Yeah. It, yeah it, go in there prepared to hate life. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the antithesis of Titanic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Pleasantville holds mm-hmm. up. Holds up, yeah. Better, yeah. better. It's it's a good movie. That's better the older I get. Yeah, it ages really well. I don't, yeah. you know, aside from the cold open, it didn't feel nineties tastic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It helps that it it is set in that in that fifty eight in that nineteen fifty eight that fifties world. Yeah, the the timelessness of nineteen fifties sitcoms, but also, I think I will I'll give Gary Ross this: the artistic choices made in this film, whether it's visual aesthetics. Or mainly music, because mm-hmm. that Fiona Apple song should have been like Smash Mouth for Shrek, but it <laughs> wasn't. You know, like it did not feel of that era at all. It felt so transcendental of its time to where when I'm watching, it, I could watch it at any time and feel like this feels like now. Yeah. And so I, I was very appreciative of those choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there you go. And uh, uh, one final note: uh, Don Knotts was pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. rest in peace, Don Knotts. Uh, well, well, actually, another final note: Do you think? Toby's mom is going to wonder what happened to her daughter. <laughs> <laughs> Wait. The the next cutscene is like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, by the way, uh, Jennifer's not coming home. <laughs> what? what? <laughs> Parent of the mother of the year. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's take a quick break here. Uh, we're going to come back and do some. Let's just catch up on some current events, some news. We got the... Um, some trailer conversation and some Oscars. But thank you all for listening. Please comment below if you have any thoughts on Pleasantville. Love it or hate it. Love or hate us. Please let us know. We'll be right back. Don't hate us. So we're back, uh, Ben. That was a wonderful well, recording there. With uh, welcome, I love, back. I love when we get, can really dig deep. I don't know if uh, uh, I don't know. I don't believe many of the people who consistently listen to this mind, but I know the the casual listeners are like, "Well, you guys got uh, you got deep on that one." <laughs> you freaking SJWs, snowflakes. <laughs> oh, you know what? I had a family member call me a snowflake. No way. <laughs> and uh, I, I wasn't happy about it. So I didn't respond. Yeah. I just let it let it be said and was like, yep. Well, you tell that person, TC, that <laughs> a million snowflakes can create an avalanche. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, before we get to uh, question of the day, 
we have some let's do trailer talk real quick okay did you see the new beauty and the beast movie that movie was great the whole movie was awesome i loved it uh the best short film of the year it was the best short film of the year they somehow managed to capture everything from that original cartoon and cram it into that five minutes and it was really fulfilling (laughs) tc's being sarcastic but literally the first act of beauty and the beast as we know it is in that trailer that was ridiculous. Yeah, it's, it's beat for beat. So for those of you who want to go see the new Beauty and the Beast, feel free to show up about 25 minutes late. You won't miss a thing. I hate the way trailers are cut these days, Taylor. Yeah, yep. uh, I'm not. Look, I don't like these live action remakes. I just was on another podcast talking about this, so I don't have to go on and on about it. But. I don't know. That, it just proves I'm not the demographic. I <laughs> because I see people so excited for this. And while I will agree, the casting in this movie is really good. Yeah, it's good. I love Dan Stevens. He's fantastic. Oh, Do you watch The Guests? Uh, no, no, no. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> it's like one of the only good. Actually, it's not a Blumhouse film. Never mind. I'm going on but a tangent. <laughs> are, you, are you excited for Beauty and the Beast? <sighs> Shockingly, I am. Because <laughs> usually I'm in your camp. I am not a fan of the Maleficent. Eh. Mm. Cinderella. Eh. Eh. Uh, what was that last one? Jungle Book? Jungle Book was one that everyone loved. <laughs> yeah. That I was in the minority where I was like, this wasn't that good. <laughs> What's wrong with you people? <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm shocked. Uh, maybe because Beauty and the Beast is one of the only, or not the only, but one of the few in the Disney classic canon mm-hmm. that I get swept up in the romanticism so easily. The <laughs> Alan Menken score, the <clears throat> the dance <throat> in the ballroom, like yeah. that, it's so, it's beyond iconic. It's transcendental for me. And yeah. And like that, and the magic carpet scene in the Aladdin Aladdin. is like two of the most romantic things I've ever seen captured in cinema. And so, I don't know. Call me a sucker, but I kind of want to see it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, sucker. Uh, but yeah, I I will see it. I I do like the casting. It's just not something I'm super thrilled about. I'm not I'm not for it, Ben. Just watch the cartoon. (laughs) Bing, do you think? Okay, is it? Because you're a Disney slash fairy tale enthusiast slash purist, because because you are in a way this is for you the story, not not because of the remake, but mm-hmm. like what what is it about these Disney remakes that turn you off? They they feel just like cash grabs. Mm-hmm. There's I I can't look at these and see something unique and wholly worth doing. I see. Well, it's the name of the game. We say I've said this time and again. You can make a hashtag out of it. The name of the game is name recognition. Yeah, and you can market these. And these re- live action remakes are totally worth the money because mm. they're the only movies making money for Disney for the live action movies. Their original movies, no. Thanks, John Carter. <laughs> uh, Lo- uh, Lone Ranger. John Carter and the final nail in the coffin, Tomorrowland. <laughs> we will never see a, an original Disney live action movie again <laughs> because of those three massive bombs. I know, and I was so sad about Queen of Cotway too last year because that was the one, one of the few uh, riskier mm-hmm. Disney original live action pieces that was released last year, and even that that was only made for like. Eight million dollars, yeah. and it did. It didn't even break even. <laughs> Suck. So I, it's just, it's I'm I'm I'm. It's a weird con- con- conflict in me because it's no different than seeing a stage show again and again and again. Yeah. But much. I I, I think this goes to anything, whether it's Disney movies or Superman or anything that exists. Star Trek. 
when you fall in love, when your first love is A, yeah, it's going to be hard to be won over by B, C, D, right? Mm. And I love the animated Beauty and the Beast. I have a f- very fond memories of growing up with that film and Aladdin and Jungle Book and, and Cinderella, those specific animated films, so that the live actions are just second banana at yeah. best. Or Maleficent, which is like not even a banana. It's, like, <laughs> it's, it's the moldy old banana no one's buying. And it's so strange because, like like you mentioned, it, all these Disney remakes are beat for beat the same as its uh, original animated counterparts. Mm-hmm. What I appreciate about even though Maleficent was not good, what I appreciate about it was they took a different angle. It, they tried. Yeah. yeah. And I wish they maybe maybe because it was not well received that they stopped doing that. <laughs> but I, I wish they kept on that trend. Just like if it's going to be live action, put it in a different perspective or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, t- TBD. But speaking <laughs> of the same old thing, and I'm not bothered by it, we have a title for the new Star Wars. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Just, just keep giving me Star Wars. I've totally been suckered in. I am. I'm. You've won me over. I no longer hate. I'm not that that hater from the prequels. <laughs> I've been. I've been watching the Clone Wars. I'm on season two. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> and shut uh, up and take my money. So we have Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi. <sighs> I I love. How clean the title is! It's, uh, at, I mean, initial reaction was like that's it, but then upon more pondering and consideration, that's all we need. Yeah, no, no, it's great. They, this this new from like seven opening up opening up with Luke Skywalker's missing. <laughs> like that's the opening crawl. I'm like, yeah. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> Say no more. No, no, back up, back up. Not even having any sort of logo, just the. The silent Lucasfilm. I'm yeah. like, I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> so sad there's no more 20th Century Fox fanfare. It's true. I, I, how can you not think of Star Wars when you hear the... <laughs> uh, but I, I, the initial reactions was like, does this mean Luke's going to die? <laughs> like t- Two things. Jedi is a plural word. Yes. And, and secondly, they are not going to kill two main characters back to back. Damn! They come, come on! I I have to put money down on this. I have to TC Thomas this. They can't kill Luke, and they genuinely can't kill Luke with Carrie Fisher just passing away. Yeah, like, right? Am I wrong? Come on! Tell me! Tell me! Luke survives. <laughs> I I want him to survive because I don't see a purpose in killing another mentor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I I don't think I don't even think Han's death. Oh, spoiler! Sorry. Um, I know it's a year already. You're but fine. You're fine. Spoiler. I don't even think Han's death was just just come just kind of backtracking off all the, like the the fanboy ness of watching the Force Awakens. I don't even <laughs> think that was just so like to do so to Luke. It's gotta be for a really good reason. Yes, and, and yeah. for for Han, the repercussions of that that we're going to see in this movie that's coming in eight and nine, and how they address Carrie Fisher's departure as well is going to make that death scene from Seven all the more. Powerful, yeah. Because right, because it's really a lot of the criticism for Seven is not fair, because it's the first of three movies, and we we don't know the full picture yet. Yeah. And once we have the answers, then we can therefore critique the questions. Uh, that goes to something like to go to Lost, to go to another J.J. Abrams property. The the questions of Lost versus the answers determine how how effective those questions were to begin with. Absolutely, <laughs> and mystery take box. It, take it or leave it. Take it or leave it. We don't need to argue about Lost. But I I, I think that I, I can appreciate you saying that you don't think Han's death was effective. But we TBD TBD, TBD, TBD of TBD. course. <laughs> I, I'm jumping the gun. I just feel 
Okay, how about this? Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong because my my Jedi knowledge is not up to yours, Sensei. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm still a patty one, but <laughs> could could Ray usher in a new generation of Force users, the light side Force users, mm-hmm. to where that that signifies that. Luke was the last Jedi because he's the last practicing Jedi. Because um, just looking on the flip side of the coin, uh, Kylo Ren is not a Sith, quote-unquote. He is a Knight of the Ren Order. Yeah. He was not trained. Yeah. He's not trained to be a Jedi. or Well, I mean, he wasn't training to be a Jedi when he flipped. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm wondering, is it a philosophical mm-hmm. thing more so than an actual... It's semantics, basically. Right. Yeah. I... I... You might be onto something mm-hmm. because the Force Awakens through marketing was oh Finn is the new Jedi uh, through execution oh Ray's the the new Jedi, but I I in multiple viewings of the Force Awakens I think the Force is has been awoken in multiple characters mm-hmm. in in a new generation of potential Jedi's and I think Finn and Ray were both woke <laughs> <laughs> to to the Force <laughs> and, and and perhaps more characters. Uh, um, but again, we'll we'll just have to wait and see. I'm 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 excited. I really uh, Ryan Johnson was involved in the script for this one. Uh, who's the director? Um, it's tr- um, Trevorrow, right? Uh, the uh, the next one or the last Jurassic, Jedi? Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Director. Colin Trevorrow. Colin, thank you. He's eight, and Ryan Johnson is directing nine. Which yeah. is gonna be amazing. <laughs> oh no no he Ryan Johnson is directing the Last Jedi, and Colin Trevorrow is directing nine. Okay. Yeah. Well, we're in good hands yeah. because Ryan Johnson is involved in eight and nine. Okay, uh, he wrote the script for nine. Then. Man, he is such a his taste is so eclectic. I'm curious to see if because obviously you can't change up Star Wars the way it looks, the way it feels aesthetically. I'm just wondering what he's going to bring narratively. That's yes, gonna be, it's going to be weird. That's what I'm most anxious for. Yeah, that that first trailer is going to be insane. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to break the internet. And, and as excited as I am for that. We can now commiserate, 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 commemorate, commiserate. Let's all be, <laughs> let's be real sad, Ben, because we've, we've lost, we've had, a, we've suffered a major blow here hmm. and possibly the death of the DC Cinematic Universe. I, I for one <laughs> think this is the final nail in the coffin. Ben Affleck is no longer directing the Batman movie and the hater I might be, the only hope I had was in him being involved in that movie. <laughs> Cue sad Affleck memes. Oh, my gosh. What the heck? Contract negotiations, dis- uh, creative differences. God help whoever takes up the mantle to do this Batman movie because they have to direct Ben Affleck. <laughs> <laughs> I... Who are they going to get to do this? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I, how does this work? I want you to think about this. To, like, look, there's been cases of a director taking a step back and continuing to be a part of a franchise. Yes. John Favreau. John Favreau. He continued to be happy uh, after leaving d- the director's chair. That was such a micro involvement, though. <laughs> but still, he, he, yeah. he was willing to continue to be part of Iron Man 3 and Spider-Man Homecoming. He's, he's he's in there. He's in it. Wow! Yeah. So he's willing to still be a part of that. That's, That's so that cool is, of him. Yeah, the reverse. That I just this is going to be. Come on now. So hashtag awkward. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, ben, could you do it this way? You want me to do it this way, huh? <laughs> That's a good idea. Maybe. You know, <laughs> don't, don't be a dick, Ben. I this I'm going to say something no one wants to hear. Mm-hmm. 
It's Zack Snyder. He's going to direct it, or it's his fault? He's going to do it. Oh, He's going to direct it. No, it's, no, it's no. The, it's the way <laughs> – it's it's the natural trajectory of every, ever since he stepped foot into the DC playground, he says, Dark Knight Returns was the, my ultimate – it's the adapt, adaptation I've always wanted to do. Batman, like he, he basically – Wanted to do Batman so bad, he turned Superman into Batman. <laughs> and so I feel like this is his way of being able to like weasel his way in. I'm basically the shepherd of this universe now, mm-hmm. and I'm on the heels of Justice League. Whether That's going to be a success either way. It's freaking Justice League. It's going to bring in numbers. But you know who would make, Do you know who would make the best Batman movie? A director-wise? Yes. Directing Ben Affleck, too. Directing Ben Affleck. Yeah, you, know, I don't, you know who I think. Now, I want you to really think about this. Don't don't react too quickly, but hear me out. Catherine Bigelow. Catherine Bigelow directing a Batman movie. Think of The Hurt Locker. Think of Point Break, which was her. Okay. She directed that. Okay. She is a wildly capable action director. Even uh, that vampire movie she did, that's, that 80s one, what was it called? The one with Bill Paxton. Oh. What the hell is that movie called? I'm completely blanking. <laughs> you ruined it. Yes, I I like that. How kick that is who that'll never happen. Not in a million years. I'll, I'll, She's too good for Batman. I'll, I'll, to be I'll, honest, I'll, I'll, I'll tweet at her. But <laughs> think of the the potential of, of a director that capable an Academy Award winning director. Yeah, um, that would be someone who could direct a Batman movie. And I know that's a completely out of the blue choice, mm. but. She should have did Wonder Woman. <laughs> I, to be honest, I don't wish upon my worst enemy to take on a DC movie. <laughs> to, to Bryce said said the our friend Bryce Marrero, uh said the greatest thing. DC has lost more directors in their whatever seven movies than Marvel has in their seventeen. <laughs> that is crazy. The Flash. A, Still doesn't have a director. What? what they went through four at this point, right? Yeah. Oh James Wan was on at one point, wasn't he? Uh, I don't think so, because he's doing Aquaman, right? Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, was, I couldn't remember which one he was involved in. Oh God. <laughs> I I have no hopes for this movie, for this universe, and like we said, not to be nihilist, but once again, there there is no coherent sense of direction yeah and it's just wandering all over the place here. wandering all over the place i and i'm trying to like i try my best to separate the art from the artist but i just feel like ben affleck seems really distracted these days <laughs> going oh. through his uh you know broken marriage with jen garner mm-hmm. um he just seems like a shell of himself he just uh lit um live by, by night, night yeah just flops bombed hard <laughs> yeah and i He's. I still have faith in him that he's got some. He's got good in him. Like, yeah, he's, he still has good in him. I can feel it. I can feel it. <laughs> Just to play uh, retroactive devil's advocate, mm-hmm. do you feel taking on Batman was a mistake because of the trajectory of where he was? He was coming off the heels of Argo. Best Picture Oscar yeah. of Argo, and the town and Gone Baby Gone. Yeah. He was blazing his. His Affleck renaissance mm-hmm. to the point where wow, Affleck's a respectable filmmaker again, and now to take on <laughs> such a failed franchise. Do you think it was a mistake to make this leap back it, into, the, especially w- since he already did comic books? It was a mistake to jump on without more control. Hmm. I I I genuinely believe if he had gotten on board and Zack Snyder had not still been there, we would have had 
better. Look, look at what he was capable of pulling off in Batman versus Superman. He was acting circles around Henry Cavill. <laughs> he he did the best with that script that anyone could have. Well, not not anyone, but he in that cast did the best that anyone could have with that script. And you know, Justice League might give us a different perspective of what he will be able to do, but. You know what the next the the next terrible piece of news would be recasting Batman. <laughs> oh, that would be awful. They could. I mean, there is an opportunity to go younger since he's an older Batman. Well, it wouldn't make any sense in the in the context of the universe. Exactly. <laughs> That's why it would be a major blow to lose to lose Affleck. So the fact that they weren't willing to negotiate, whatever the situation was, they're on thin ice. They need him. Yeah. They they desperately need him. There's. I think they're at the point of no return, TC. And oh how how do you fix it? There's even the best screenwriters and script doctors and influential minds of this of Hollywood. There, there's just so many incongruencies to <laughs> go back and fix. Like, how do you do it? I can't. Th- it, it makes my head spin just thinking of all how all these movies not connect well, but also how how these characters. Still not even that well fleshed out. Like mm-hmm. there, there are they have no character to them. Yeah, uh, I could tell you a laundry list of information about Tony Stark, Steve Rogers, uh, Hulk, even Hulk, yeah. Hulk, Hulk, even. I could give you a laundry <laughs> list of information. The dude's been in three movies. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and and one of them wasn't even Mark Ruffalo. <laughs> no, <laughs> like all those all the Marvel characters are so fleshed out. Yeah. It, there will never not be an opportunity to compare DC to Marvel until DC shoots themselves in the foot and just starts from scratch. And love it or hate it, that's just the state of that's just the state of things. Marvel, and it's not even the movies. Marvel and DC have been com- being compared to each other since the '60s when yes. Marvel started to come into existence. <laughs> so, I'm sorry if anyone's tired of hearing the comparison to Marvel and DC. It will never stop. Deal with it. <laughs> and Marvel's just going to continue to kick some ass. Yeah, that's right. Let's sigh. Let's sigh. Let's talk Oscars. I like it. The Oscars uh, uh, nominations are out. We got, once again, the giant middle finger of not filling that 10th slot for Best Picture. What is up with that? That listen, is some shade. Listen, Zootopia. Come on. Yeah. And there's I, That's the easiest answer. Like Typically, it's like, well, what could fix that, fill that 10th slot? Come on. Zootopia <laughs> is clearly one of the best movies of the year. What what else was on our top ten that we could have easily put in that that slot? Well, some of them are, are like Arrival's on there for me. Yeah. Um, uh, well, Hidden Figures got com- not Hidden Figures. Um, the Handmaiden snubbed completely. Yeah, uh, South Korea didn't even enter that as an entry for their country. Uh, which well, is- then there you go. That's why I didn't get that. <laughs> That's your fault. <laughs> I am man. That we need to go back to five. What is this ten crap? Well, it, it's <laughs> it's the Dark Knight's fault, and it's the Dark Knight's fault in that they didn't nominate the Dark Knight. Yes, <laughs> and it's the commercial failings of the Oscars every year. Yeah, look, that adding ten to Best Picture to the that was that was a mistake. It didn't help anything. It just made the show run longer. Yeah. and make more people angry. <laughs> <laughs> now you have more losers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you get to say you were nominated for Best Picture, except <laughs> the tenth empty spots. I. It just makes me mad that they do that because it's so I – kn- I know, I know there's some sort of formula to why there isn't a 10th nomination. But it's ridiculous that they don't just take the next the next one, whatever yeah. the next one in the 
That just seems so logical. To me. <laughs> it's literally a middle finger. Well, here are the Best Picture nominees. We have La La Land, Arrival, Lion, Hell or High Water, Hidden Figures, Moonlight, Hacksaw Ridge, Manchester by the Sea, and Fences. And I'm pulling for Moonlights. <laughs> Woo! Same here. Team Moonlight. There, there, I will point out, though, that I do feel that Oscar's so white that that campaign is showing that it's, that it made a mark. Yes. Because we have Lion, Hidden Figures, Moonlights, and Fences are all movies with people of color. That's fantastic. Can I also throw in one more wrinkle? What I really learned, especially the last, because people forget this lasted for two years, uh, the Oscar so white mm-hmm. uh, debacle. Mm-hmm. Um, what I really appreciated, because a lot of folks are interpreting it as liberal white guilt, <laughs> <laughs> just to say, oh, that they nominated these three movies. Yeah, out of out of sheer guiltiness. This- I w- I will counter it by saying, the beautiful thing to come out of this campaign that is Oscar so white. It made executives and producers and filmmakers wake up and say, wait a minute. It's not just – it's because these films didn't exist already. It's because we weren't giving it, uh, any these folks a lane uh, to express their artistic creativity, their stories to tell. Mm-hmm. More – like we we were talking about it earlier in the year. Like, this is – I mean it's it's been a garbage year politically and socially, but like it has been a fantastic year for black films. And oh, yeah, yeah. And it's it's folks at like A twenty four or Plan B or like uh, Focus Features taking more chances, taking more shots at a at a movie like Hidden Figures or mm-hmm. Fences or Moonlight. Like these don't just sprout of anywhere. <laughs> so I think Oscar So White. What's fantastic about it and what's so beautiful about that campaign? It sprouted systemic change. It wasn't just you know last year these movies didn't exist. How do you nominate something that doesn't exist? Right. Yeah. So it it created actual change instead of just like hey we're feeling bad so let's vote for fences let's, let's, just, <laughs> let's just nominate the one that exists yeah uh, they they yeah. they were able to choose because loving's not on here and that's a yeah a film about people of color mm-hmm. and, and and very poignant to the times yes um, but uh there, there also are some there's it's not for lack of controversy though because yeah. uh, when you look at something like casey affleck being nominated for Manchester oh. by the Sea, Jesus and Christ. he has <laughs> he has uh, assault um, allegations against him. Yeah. That, uh, so um, I don't know. I, the, and Mel Gibson. <laughs> and Mel Gibson is, yeah. is uh, all over this list too. It's the, the Oscars aren't the end all be all because mm. at the end of the day, you can have your opinion and love what you love. That's yeah. fine. And, and if you like this movie, you don't like this movie. That's fine. But. Winning the Oscar, being nominated for an Oscar is – you put that on your resume, you got some leverage. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's it's what you do with that leverage after the fact that that will determine the rest of your career. Nicolas Cage has an Oscar, okay? <laughs> um, uh, um, uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. has an Oscar. 3-6 Mafia has an Oscar. <laughs> that, that was the longest running joke was like, 3-6 Mafia has an Oscar and <laughs> Martin Scorsese does not have one. <laughs> it's not the end all be all, but it's the Super Bowl. It's the Super Bowl yeah. of film. And it's it, it, we're in award season, so you got the Screen Actors Guild and the Golden Globes. and you got Those, those are all the championship games. The yeah. Super Bowl is the Oscars, and it will always be the most important award to – the mainstream to the zeitgeist yes to, to pop pop culture 
And so, like you've always said, especially on this podcast, it creates a ripple effect of not just copycats, because that's just saying, that's just taking it superficially, but people wanting to take more chances on genre mm-hmm. or on uh, underrepresented artistic communities, yes. stuff like that. Yeah. Stuff like you would never see in the mainstream unless the conversation was started somewhere. And the, what better place to start than on the largest platform in cinema? Right. Yeah. If you, if, if a movie is represented that is like Mad Max is a awesome example of what the hell is that doing up on this <laughs> list and, and being able to like let me explain mm-hmm. <laughs> this is why it's here and for it to sweep so many awards last year was was fantastic because it's going to encourage that type of filmmaking and also unfortunately the copycats will come as well yeah. which is just a that's the byproduct of of the success of something like this but then even looking at Whiplash and um, Grand Budapest Hotel. Those are two other movies that um, could, can and have ignited the fire of people's careers, but also people, amateurs, who are vying for that. Whiplash in particular coming from someone who's who's made so many short films to know that that lottery ticket exists, that there is, that somehow that lightning in the bottle could be captured by being a short film artist to be allowed to enter the bigger stage. That's exciting, and that's due to the success of something like Whiplash, which we really should think about Whiplash. Like, that is an oddity. Like, the type of movie that is, the the production of that movie, the, the way it looks, the way it plays out, that that isn't, that doesn't really, to me, feel like an Oscar movie. Yeah. I just, yes. Yeah. And and that just proves how special that that film is. Mm-hmm. God, I love that movie. Lightning <laughs> in a bottle. <laughs> love that movie. So what what do you think? What do you hope wins, and what do you think is going to win Best Picture? I want Moonlight to win. La La Land's going to win. La La Land's going to win. Um, you you know Hollywood, they just love to. They're so self congratulatory. La La Land's <laughs> the perfect circle jerk, just like <laughs> nostalgia and and. And L.A. So that being said, it was your number one pick of the year. So it was. I, I mean, I don't want to show on the film because I love it. I I know there's just this. We were talking off mic about the insane, unwarranted hate coming out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, I hate it. I hate it. I I will admit there some of the criticism warranted. Yeah. However, maybe because we're seeing it from filmmakers' perspectives, mm-hmm. we appreciate it so much on a storytelling and technical level. Yeah. That sounds super pretentious, but I I will say just watching it. As a aspiring filmmaker, it made me want to watch films. Mm-hmm. And shouldn't that be the goal? You know, it, it in, inspires in some aspects. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know. It, it. I left feeling good in a in not just a sugar sweet way, but in like, hey, we can do this. I felt empowered. Yes. by the film. <clears throat> so I won't be brokenhearted if it wins, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I do. I would love to see something like Moonlight win. Yes. Um, I. I haven't seen Hell or High, Hell or High Waters on here, which is yes. which is nuts because you picked it in your top ten. Mm-hmm. I still haven't gotten a chance to see it. So when I saw that pop up, I was surprised. Yes, uh, it's a western. It's um, it's a modern day western, right? Cowboy movie in a sense, mm-hmm. like it's a bank robber in the west situation. But yes, uh, seeing that on list was a big surprise to me. Watch that win. <laughs> That'll be the spotlight of the year. <laughs> <laughs> it's a win for independent film. That's yes. fantastic. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see uh, any other categories you're interested in discussing. Yeah. Um, I think actor and actress, I don't know if there were any surprises. Did you, did you notice any surprises, any snubs for you? Um, Amy Adams. 
Oh, oh Amy for... Adams was a snub. Did I, you finally see Arrival? I haven't seen Arrival. Okay. However, Meryl Streep gets nominated for Breathing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. She is nominated for... I, I love the woman, but... Come on. <laughs> Florence Foster Jenkins, man. Who the hell watched that movie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. No one saw The English Patient. That won, that won Best Picture. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, I. The, so the Best Actress category is Isabel uh, Hubert from Elle. She won the Golden Globe, right? Yes. Yep. I heard that was uh, – she's the dark horse. Yeah, she's definitely dark. Uh, Ruth, Nega, Ruth Nega, I will say that was a surprise. Mm-hmm. I love – that was a pleasant surprise. Natalie Portman, Emma Stone, and Meryl Streep. Um, I, I'm surprised to see Natalie Portman on there because Jackie didn't strike me as an incredibly – I didn't see it, so I okay. guess I'm I'm being prejudiced. But it it did seem like oh, that's an Oscar bait movie. Yeah, yeah, good, nah, yeah, yeah. Good luck, Natalie. <laughs> but I've heard good things. If, obviously, it's worthy of an of an of a nomination. So. <laughs> uh, Who do you think will win? I would love to see Ruth Nega win, and I haven't even seen Loving. <laughs> Man, it's I'm just I'm shocked that she even got nominated. Mm-hmm. I think that's a stretch. <laughs> it's uh, so likely Emma Stone. I think she because she won the Golden Globe yeah. and the SAG Awards is definitely definitely like an indicator of who's going to win. Yeah. Usually, mm-hmm. it's and, probably going to lean towards Emma. Yeah, uh, actor. Um, where's actor? We have um, yeah. I mean, Casey Affleck, Andrew Garfield, Ryan Gosling, Viggo Mortensen. Who is that? Was I didn't, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> that was super random. And Denzel. Um, I hear a lot of people saying like it's Denzel. Oh, Denzel, Denzel. But it's. I, it's God, I don't know, probably Casey Affleck, huh? Uh, he's such a scumbag. <laughs> he, looks like, he looks like a homeless guy. <laughs> Were there any other categories? Um, uh, who Who's in director again? Uh, direct- I know it's going to come down to Damien and Barry Jenkins. Ooh. <laughs> but I was wondering, I don't remember if there were any snubs or surprises. Uh, directing, uh, so, oh, it doesn't even have their names next to it. <laughs> Arrival, Hacksaw Ridge, La La Land, Manchester by the Sea, and Moonlight. I will say this. I am shocked by the reception Hacksaw Ridge is getting. Yeah. The, I didn't see it, so I'm, I, maybe I'm being prejudiced. It is bloody brutal, man. Okay. I, what else would you expect from Mel Gibson? Every movie <laughs> he makes is just more and more violent. <laughs> oh, God. It's really quite a powerful movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andrew Garfield gives a really great performance, but there's something about that. Uh, when when an actor puts on an accent like a like um, Swiss Army Man, Daniel Radcliffe's accent as a, as an American accent, you forget it's there. Like it's it becomes his voice. But the, Andrew Garfield, I could never get over his put on accent. <laughs> <laughs> the trailers look so schlocky, and it's very heavily uh, Christian faith based. Mm. So I, yeah, I'm I am surprised by its reception as well. But I don't know. Mel Gibson must have kissed a lot of feet to apologize <laughs> please i'm please. sorry i'm so sorry i repent um but so moonlight la la land and arrival those are the three my my of those three i could see those three winning um you haven't seen arrival yet so i, I don't know how much to say about it but there's something so good about that movie <laughs> man it's just but you're right it, it probably it's between barry jenkins and damon chazelle yeah I um just a fun historical fact the nominations made uh just not it just it's a continuing conversation about Oscars so why um 
Bradford Young, nominated first African American to be nominated for Best Cinematography. Oh, cool! And uh, he's an amazing man. Got to talk to him once. He's one of the best cinematographers on the game right now. Wow. I am so happy he's getting recognized. He did Arrival. So. Okay, oh, that's amazing. So, your movie's getting recognized, TC. <laughs> um, I wish it was my movie. <laughs> Jeez. And uh, Joy. Damn, I forgot her last name. I'm so sorry, Joy. But one of the uh, second editor, the co-editors of Moonlight, first African American woman to be nominated for best editing, um, and Barry Jenkins. This yeah. Is, this is what's impressive here. First African American director, or just filmmaker in general, to be nominated for the Triple Crown, director, best picture, and uh, adapted screenplay. Wow. All right. First ever. I didn't realize that. That's crazy. A whole new world. Now, I also want to just end this Oscar So White talk in terms of, like, I I know we're very celebratory. We're very uh, jubilant of all the nominees because Mm -hmm. it is, quote, unquote, diverse. Mm -hmm. Just to continue the critical lens, because that's what I do is be a sourpuss. I think diversity is too much of a black and white conversation. Right. Because there is no Latino representation still. Mm-hmm. There's only one Asian actor that was nominated, which is Hey, Dave, hey Dave Latinos won two years in a row. Come on. <laughs> Come on, Dave. <laughs> Give the other people a chance. God damn it, TC. And Handmaiden, right. that's their fault. They did not nominate. <laughs> but shout out to Dev Patel. Asian representation right there. <laughs> we got a, We got one. We well, got one. I'm still not forgiving him for Avatar the last, <laughs> the last Airbender. And from the roundtable talks, he has not forgiven himself either. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> those those are great. That's on um, watched no uh, uh, the Hollywood Reporter. Hollywood Reporter. Thank yeah. you. Um, animated feature, real quick. We got Kubo, Moana, My Life as a Zucchini, The Red Turtle, and Zootopia. Two claymation films, as well as two Disney movies in Zootopia and Moana. And uh, that's cool. I I would I am pulling for Zootopia. Yes, I think it should have been in the best picture category. <laughs> so that's my that's my poll for there. I think it's blazing a path off its Golden Globe win. I yeah. think it might take it. Cool. Uh, and who's hosting? Jimmy Kimmel. Yeah, that's right. Okay. I don't like him. I don't like Kimmel either. <laughs> uh, but he'll get up on stage and he'll make fun of the celebrities like they rightly deserve, and that'll be fine. But um, you actually had a question for me, I sure which did. which kind of lends to the platform of acceptance speeches in the Oscars and. And artists, artists in positions of power. So, mm-hmm. what, what, what did you want to ask me? Uh, as the more and more our political and social climate becomes contentious and heated and divisive, more and more "quote unquote" celebrities, including actors, singers, artists, are coming out and using their platforms of mm-hmm. uh, fame to speak out against uh, uh, all these new. Uh, Unconstitutional acts or our mm-hmm. 44th president and whatnot. Yeah. Um, starting with Meryl Streep and then all the way to the SAG Awards where, with the Stranger Things cast. <laughs> A shout out to Winona and her many faces. <laughs> but uh, my question to you, TC, uh, the criticism of whether or not actors, actresses, directors, and singers and so forth, mm-hmm. should they speak out on these things or should they shut their mouth and just enjoy collecting their checks? I don't think they should just shut their mouths mm-hmm. and collect their checks. Uh, that gives us bad films. Uh, having a voice, having a platform to use your voice, um, allows people to to 
project messages. And this whole people uh, getting on the case of Meryl Streep and, and getting on the case of the Strangers thing, which I like that Stranger Things speech. That was so – like, he good. was amped up. <laughs> Man, I, I was surprised they didn't just write. It was like, let's go punch some Nazis. <laughs> and, and I'm glad they won because yeah. the series is so cool. Uh, but this is nothing new. Marlon Brando didn't accept his award. He sent an Indian up on stage to accept it for him. Like, Native American TC. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know what I meant. <laughs> that, which was really cool because – when I heard about that, I didn't realize that happened. I, I watched the clip, and I was that was a really powerful speech. Yes, yeah. So the the I mean, held uh, Jared Leto, Matthew McConaughey in in Dallas Buyers Club acceptance speeches. Mm-hmm. There's always um, was Patricia, was Patricia Arquette last year. Arquette, yeah. With um, Boyhood, I hate that movie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there, there's always going to be these politically motivated social commentary acceptance speeches it's just sean penn come on like tim robbins like she's <laughs> surrounded uh there there's always going to be this first of all the people who react so anti like against this you know what you're getting yourself into why are you even bothering watching these award shows yeah. if you're just going to be fired up by what someone has to say walk away all right you know it's not for you shut up but your question in should they do this should yeah. should they do this yes i think that to a point having the opportunity to speak for a people is important i mm. think you should any any opportunity you have to to decry uh, to 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 have a message and to say something that that means something to people you should you should take that opportunity there are certainly cases of people going too far there's certainly cases of Hurting, hurting yourself in the message. Like Sean Penn is a good example of like, <laughs> you, need, you need stop, stop. You don't speak for all of us. Please stop. I, I feel like uh, the case of Sean Penn and Tim Robbins, it's so self-congratulatory. Mm-hmm. It's like, look how humanitarian like, I am. Clooney is another example of his very smug acceptance speech yeah. uh, several years back. For that. But to say something like the Strangers Thing speech was so impassioned mm-hmm. and it was such a motivational speech to – to the people. Yeah. Right? He wasn't up there talking to the room. He was up there using that moment to talk to everyone who would hear them. And Stranger Things, he's right. Stranger Things represents everything he said is represented in that show. And he reiterated the message that the content he just won for said. Yeah. So when someone wins an award for A and then they go up there and start babbling about B, <laughs> it's it comes out of nowhere, yeah. right? And like Meryl Streep kind of came out of nowhere in in saying what she did. I, I kind of appreciate what she said, though. She she made a good point. Hugh Laurie did not because he won an award for playing a crazy rich guy, <laughs> <laughs> right? So it sounded like, tone deaf. Yeah, yeah. It's it's when you come out of context to to have your message. That's when it that's when it starts feeling inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, how about you though? What do you feel about people who use the platforms to to do what they to do stuff like that? Absolutely. For me, this is how I see it. In times of crises, and I don't think that's being hyperbolic or overdramatic. We're in we're in a crisis, <laughs> but in times of crises, I feel like whatever your occupation is, you're citizen first of mm-hmm. your nation, right? And as citizens, we not only have the right, but it's almost a duty to speak out against injustice. Mm-hmm. And I feel as though 
we're not treating these folks like they're citizens. Yes, they have more money than us. Yes, they have more of a pool socially and inf- and monetarily, influentially, and stuff like that. But why aren't they getting their fair shake when they speak out? Is it because we're jealous of their social status? It's the yeah. people who are against it are di- who disagree with them. Yeah. If if someone got up there and spent three minutes speech talking about, like, I want to thank Jesus for doing this and God blessed me and blah, 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 blah. And I'm not saying that disparagingly. If they went up there and had just a prayer for 90 seconds, 30, th- for three minutes – you better believe some of those people who like Meryl Streep should sit down and shut up would be like, that was the best acceptance speech I ever did heard, right? <laughs> it's just because they disagree. I, and I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah. Um, uh, please continue. Oh, no, no, no. I, that's a fantastic way to look at it. And I just think there's – there like, like I mentioned, there is a responsibility for you, like we've been reiterating since our Pleasantville review, as a citizen – to speak up and speak out. Everyone has a platform, no matter how big or small. Mm-hmm. These folks just have happen to have a way bigger seat at the table. But the fact that they're using what they have and they're putting their reputation on the line. You know, in the past, like, we, we talk about Patricia Arquette. She spoke about uh, equal the, pay for women. Yeah, the inequality in the Hollywood structure and how the folks are paid. You know, it's still happening. And yet Patricia Arquette has been saying she has been receiving less roles because of that speech. But she put herself on the line to speak out of, for that issue, a very yeah. important issue. And yeah. now all the actresses are talking about that. And I think that's very selfless. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something to not just aspire to, but to be celebrated. And, you know, some of these speeches, this has been, you know, out of this contentious election and all these political turmoil and whatnot, there's so many memorable Award speeches now. We, know, right? You and I used to make fun of award speeches. Like they're just, it's either play just off. play them off, play them off. It's either just <clears throat> political, overly self-serving babble, mm-hmm. a la Sean Penn and Tim Robbins, or it's just Anne Hathaway, Kate Winslet crying, crying <laughs> unintelligibly, just trying to make words come together coherently. Which I would, that would be my speech. <laughs> I, I Which yeah. When I was young, I was told if. You're going to speak, hmm. and people are going to listen. You better have something to say. Something good to say. <laughs> Just something to say. Yeah. <laughs> if, and and being in the spotlight and having that microphone for however short amount of time it is, you better have something to say. Yeah. If it's thank you, mom and dad. If it's I can't believe this is happening, or if it's this movie was about rights and we need to address that in our day. Today, today, like you got the spotlight, you got the mic. What do you got to say? What are you gonna do about it? Yeah, you just gotta thank your agent and walk off. Yeah, or are you gonna say something thought provocative or thought provoking mm-hmm. that will stir up whether it's angry or joyous, productive conversation the next day. Yeah, you know, water cooler talk. <laughs> and so, and, and I think this is there's been so many. How, how many? Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no, no worries. So what were you gonna say? <laughs> how many? How many of these speeches have been the next day trending? Like that never happens, right? It's, like, it's, it's like one or two. It's unprecedented. Like every, every week award show, someone said something. <laughs> Which I, I I don't know about. I mean, a lot of Americans are angry about it, but I'm so appreciative of it because yeah, you know, shit's bad <laughs> when Budweiser is gonna make a, 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 a basically a 
two minute ad about refugees. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, it's bad when Katy Perry's going to come out on Twitter and say something. You know, <laughs> we've reached a, a whole new era when B- the CEO of Blizzard at BlizzCon <laughs> is being asked about the presidents. Please, what are your thoughts on the president? Uh, I make video games. Yeah, but we need to know what your thoughts are. <laughs> That's how charged this climate is. Now. Yeah, this, this is crazy. They, it's. How much? I just don't. There's so much to that has built to this point in mm. film and in in pop culture and in ev- in po- politics, everything, social media. Like yeah. w- we just keep moving in this strange trajectory of like, hey, cats, you're you're upset too. <laughs> but <laughs> like yeah, but social politics. media becomes more and more and more and more part of the daily life that everything and everything becomes more and more instantaneous and voices are are louder. It's there's no turning back. Yeah. <laughs> Whew, it's just it's an it's you've changed things forever. It's, it's an ex- exciting, terrifying time. Um, I'm. I keep saying using the word appreciative, and I, I hope folks hear me when I say that because for the longest time, I, as many other folks, have been taught to keep our mouth shut when it comes to politics because nothing good will come out of it. Are only arguments, and I feel like that's such a problematic way to look at it because you look at politics and look how much it shapes the way the world around us is. Like whether it's education, whether it's um, law enforcement, whether it's cinema, <laughs> it shapes the social context of our existence. Like mm. our existence is political. And to shun that aspect of our existence is to say you don't exist, you know? And so for the overly privileged, yes, it's a it's a privilege to not be able to talk about that and not have it affect your daily life. But for, so, for some of us, you know, like <clears throat> just to get a little bit personal, and I know this is anecdotal, but I feel like to balance facts with, you know, personal sometimes is a mm-hmm. way to really hammer the message home. Yeah. And this whole no band, no wall thing going on, you know my my folks are refugees. You know, like that's something I don't. I'm very appreciative on a daily basis, but I don't always think about. It. I don't think about that word. Some folks think that refugees is a dirty word to them, but my folks were refugees, and I'm proud of that fact. You they, know, they fled their country. Yeah, they they fled political turmoil. They left their homes. No one like I read the perfect quote. No one chooses to be a refugee. Okay. <laughs> if if everyone could stay in their own corner of the world, I'm sure they want to. Yeah. But my parents didn't have a choice, but they made the best of it. And now I now I have a choice thanks to them. And so that's that's just something some people just don't understand. And a lot of it I know it's it's because of power and money. Mm-hmm. Like our 45th president is not doing this. I'm sure a lot of it has to do with inner hatred he has for whatever reason. But a lot of it also has to be has is for economical gain, you know. He has a lot to gain out for out of this. Yeah. A lot of power. And look at him. He he has the Senate by the balls. The Republican <laughs> Party does not like him, but he has their balls and a vice and he can do whatever he wants. And it's insane and it's it's scary. And so the the people have the right to march. The mm-hmm. celebrities have the right to speak out on Twitter and on these award shows. Who are we to say they can't? We're upset. Yeah. Let us be upset. <laughs> <laughs> this is personal. Like the, someone you know is an immigrant or someone you know is a refugee, and mm-hmm. it's hitting close to home for a lot of us. And I just feel like it's this is no time to be silent. No. Our existence is political, and you have a duty as an American to speak up. That's yeah. all I got to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> mm, amen, my brother. <laughs>
get outside. I, you know, we can wrap the up, episode up here, but get outside of your comfortable circles. Like I, I, I look at both sides of the news feed because I need to. I watch the. I watch. The, You're a brave man, <laughs> I, but I have to because yeah. I want to know both sides of the argument so yeah. that I can come to logical, moderate conclusions and not just hear what I want to hear and ignore what I don't. But get. Well, we're we're just a dumb movie podcast. <laughs> no, we're, but, we're we're doing a service. <laughs> <laughs> but to 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 quote Pleasantville, get get out because out there, it's louder, scarier, and dangerous, and that's exciting. Yes. <laughs> so thank you, Marley Shelton, a national treasure. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, we are going to come back next week with. Do, do you agree with me on next? Week? I do. Yep, I do. We're going to we watch Ben. We're going to watch Alvin the Chipmunks nah, 3 <laughs> Road Chip. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to watch Equilibrium <laughs> and face a, and and have some more conversation about um, the current state of affairs. Um, I think that we've we've certainly gone that direction in the podcast in the past year and a half. Uh, maybe even more. Um, I don't think we were able to help ourselves. But I hope we don't get called SJWs for that. <laughs> hey, you know what? I'm no. I'm not a warrior for anyone, <laughs> and, and I'm not a very social person either. So, but thank you, thank you for listening. If you have any thoughts on Pleasantville, uh, and you did listen to the rest of the podcast, we appreciate it. Uh, again, you can tweet at Ben. Uh, at Benjitos, B-E-N-J-I-T-O-E-S. Would you like to plug anything? Yes, I am the El Capitan of Band with No Name Films. We have much more content flowing for the 2017, so please subscribe at YouTube and follow us on Facebook. Cool. Uh, you can tweet at me or hit me up on Instagram at TC's Big Head. Uh, if you want to hear another podcast I've been doing the past couple of weeks, which is going to take me through the year weekly, uh, every Wednesday I will be on a, a podcast, the Top Shelf Podcast with Jeff Bell. Uh, he did the AFI 100s, um, and now we are doing the Disney Animation Studios Library. So if you want a little more lighter fare and a lot less social t- conversation, uh, we just did Dumbo this past week. So, <laughs> And we're doing Bambi next. Dumbo's about communism. <laughs> <laughs> That's Lion King. Uh, but thank you, everyone, for listening. I am TCD Witt for Ben over here, for all the rewatchmen everywhere saying, don't be afraid. Don't hold back. Keep doing what you're doing. Birds are flying out like a